Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Wiggle Room. Being that it's the city's most vibrant burlesque venue, a night at Wiggle Room feels like a trip back in time to Montreal's rebellious youth. Right across from Schwartz's, and other Montreal landmarks, the Wiggle Room promises to entertain on the coldest winter night and the longest summer evening alike. Finally, we receive support from Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today we're going to be talking to novelists. Well, actually, I don't even know if I can hear a lot of things, <laughs> but um, to Alexander uh, Boldizar. Did I pronounce that correctly? Yeah, Boldizar. Boldizar. Okay. Uh, we're going to be talking about well, lots of things, but uh, uh, mostly, probably, at least initially, you're going to be talking about this fantastic novel that you wrote uh, called "The Ugly." So, welcome. Uh, and we're, you go by you go by Boldy, right? Uh, yeah, with my close friends, I go by Boldy. So, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go by Boldy. You, you know, it's actually this is you are the third guest that we've had on um, who goes by his last name, like socially goes by it's so it's uh it's it's actually not that not that strange but uh but anyway so um tell us uh, just introduce yourself i guess to our guests tell like who you are i mean you've done so many different things you're gonna sort of have to curate what you want to mention you know do you want to mention wrestling bears do you want to wrestle <laughs> brazilian jiu-jitsu <laughs> like <laughs> so uh tell us um well I, i'm a i'm a writer i'm a former lawyer or recovering lawyer <laughs> um, I'm, a, I'm a father. Uh, I practice jujitsu. Um, I guess I, I, I've I've kind of dabbled in a lot of different things. I've moved around my, most of my life, uh, both in terms of geography and, and career, um, and even philosophy of life. Uh, but yeah, that's. I, I think it will come out as we're talking through different different aspects. So let's start with that. Okay. Well. This novel, I mean, it is, I, I want to sort of, I want to talk about it, but I also want everybody to go and buy it. And so I don't want to give away the story. But I mean, I guess I was trying to explain it to a couple of people the other day. And the best I could come up with is it, it's it's kind of like a mix between Conan the Barbarian and um, 
that legally blonde, you know, where that uh, like <laughs> blonde girl like goes to goes to Harvard and st- like studies in the law school and stuff like that. It's just this um, this this guy, this like from an honor and shame society in this small rural village in Siberia, uh, who. <laughs> Yeah, ends up, you know, decides to go to Harvard Law School. So, I mean, how did you come up with this? Was this just like a a dream? Did you have too much reindeer <laughs> pee with magic mushrooms in it? Like, like, what did you do? How did you come up with this? It's a very, very uh, imaginative book. It's kind of... So, how did you come up with this? Well, there were several different factors that kind of all or different ingredients that all fed into one. Um, the idea of this kind of strong mountain man-ish figure, there's a Slovak fairy tale I grew up with, uh, the, the character named Valibuk. Valibuk is kind of a staple of Slovak folk heroes. He's a, uh, Valibuk literally means the, the feller of beech trees. Um, and beech trees in Slovakia have the connotation that oak trees have here, a strong, big trees. Um, so this is a guy who could rip trees out of the ground, <laughs> and and uh, he uh, yeah he Valibuk he, he breastfed for the f- first three years, and then his mom wanted to stop, and he said no no feed me for three more. So he kept breastfeeding, and then uh, he ended up breastfeeding till he was eighteen, and that's what made him uh, that's what made him so strong that he could rip full grown beech trees out of the ground. Um, I wonder if the the writers of Game of Thrones had that that story in mind. When they came up, you know the big red-headed, red-bearded wilding guy. I can't remember oh, his so name. He was favorite. He was my favorite character. Yeah, and you know, you remember when he talked about? It, he's like, "How I got so strong is I killed a giant when I was twelve years old, and then I crawled into bed with his woman, and she thought I was a baby, and so she suckled me until <laughs> that's how I got so. So he, he says he drank giant's milk for like a yeah. number of years, and that's how he got so big and strong. And you remember that one? It was like one of the last episodes. <laughs> Yeah, maybe they had a Slovak writer. I don't know. Yeah. Um, so th- th- there was that aspect of it. Um, there was a combination of. Uh, at one point, I was in Prague. I was working as an attorney in Prague, and uh, I overheard a table next to me who thought I was a Westerner. They were speaking Czech, and they were for some reason. It was right after the country split, and uh, they were mocking Slovaks as as a bunch of. Mo- mountain men that threw boulders at each other and so I, I i grabbed onto that stereotype um and obviously it's it's, it's not the reality of slovakia and uh, i've had a few people <laughs> accuse me of hating my of hating my birth country or heritage uh and it's not i i just think it's a lot of fun to take stereotypes and and run with them mm-hmm. um to ad absurdum level and i found something very uh I don't know, heartwarming about about that that image um and i was eight i was a kid when we uh when we escaped and uh spent six months in a refugee camp and then canada took us in so uh, why did you so escape my, it was during the cold war so it was okay. because we were trying to get with communist dictatorship okay um uh, but so i grew up with kind of a, a child's notion of what slovak culture was yeah but i never lived there as an adult i lived there as a kid and then you kind of romanticize it and so, as, as an adult writing the book, I knew that that's not that wasn't truly Slovakia. So I had to create an excuse to move them 
into the mountains of Siberia in order to kind of caricature them a bit. Um, and part, I mean, I'm, I'm digressing a bit here, but one of the the story about how they ended up in Siberia is actually a rooted in historical fact. There was a uh, the Czech and Slovak Legion during World War One uh, did break through Russian lines, and uh, like good Slovaks and Czechs, instead of turning back, they just kept marching forward until they uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> they marched out of Vladivostok. You yeah. know, the, they um, went all the way to the, I looked it up after, you know, I kept looking up a lot of things that you mentioned in the, in the novel. And just cause I was curious to know, because thing is, is your, your attention to detail is, is very, very often. It's like extremely accurate. Right. And so, which is wonderful because like, it's this fantastic novel that it, 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 I'm sure you've heard this comparison many times, but um, the, the closest comparison I can think to your style is uh, is Neil Stevenson, you know, sort of hard science fiction where it's kind of it's fantastic, but uh, it's very very rooted in like in details of of reality, right? So so it gives it like this verisimilitude, which is really quite quite nice. So I, I looked that up and I saw that they had gone all the way to the Sea of Japan and everything, just wild. I mean, like, and they, and they, yeah. they got home. They got home by taking ships out of through the Sea of Japan and going full circle. And uh, that, to me, reinforced that when I first learned that story as a kid, I reinforced to me this idea that you know I don't, we don't duck, we don't go back, <laughs> we just keep going forward. Just keep going. <laughs> like you know, burning the ships on the beach so that you have no way of returning at all. But uh, it's funny because growing up in Quebec, I uh, there was a. Kind of a lot of well, you lived here for a while. You you know about this, like, but there was all this dialogue about what's going to happen if Quebec separates from Canada. And again and again, growing up here, I I heard people say, um, especially after Czechoslovakia broke up into the Czech Republic and Slovakia, uh, they the analogy was drawn again and again and again. They said we're going to be like Slovakia. You know, basically, like Slovakia is more fun. You know, they stay up more late. They're more wild. They're they're sort of like, kind of the the southern Italy uh, of che- of Czechoslovakia. They're but they're also more corrupt, and they have like more dysfunctional, more kind of like corruption. They're lazy. They sleep in. They drink too much. You know, and like all those stereotypes, right? And they said, you know, well, Canada it works really well having being like a mix between the the French culture and the English culture, but that if Canada splits up, um, Canada will become all of the worst. It won't have Quebec to rein in its tendencies. And um, if Quebec separates from Canada, it won't have English Canada to rein in its worst tendencies. And so this was, so I was very interested when you mentioned, I started reading the book and it says, you know, he's, he's Slovakian, he's a Slovak and all this stuff. So, I mean, have you spent a lot of time in Slovakia since it became a country? No, I haven't. I've I've gone back to visit a couple of times, um, but I haven't lived there. I I did live in Quebec during the big referendum, the one that was 49.9 against 50.1. Yeah. I was at McGill (laughs) at the and so I, I remember, I remember that, um, but and I agree, I agree with the idea that um, you know tensions are, are inherently 
a positive in my view. And I think a lot of the book is about about the necessity of tensions and how meaning comes from those aporias or, or paradoxes or, or just conflict. That's where life is. That's where the energy is, is in the tension. Um, and so I agree that, you know, Quebec without Canada and vice versa, you'd, you'd lose some of that uh, that balance. And I think that the Czechs and Slovaks, you know, the support at separation was 10% among Slovaks and 5% among the Czechs. It's not like it was a popular movement. Um, really? I didn't know that. And, and I think people on both sides really regretted it, but they accepted it and said, well, it's a done deal, now we're moving forward. Um, but nobody was really in favor other than the two uh, presidents. You I, had, uh, I did not Mechia. know that. I did not know that. Wow. That's really yeah, the, sad. The, 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 <laughs> and the, just to feed into the stereotype even more, I'm going to get hung here, but um, the president at the time, Mechiar, he was a former boxer. And he ended up enormously popular in Slovakia for a short time because he punched Havel in the nose. So <laughs> Václav Havel, who's kind of fetid uh, as a Nobel Peace Prize winner, <laughs> yeah. um, he... he he did a lot of really terrible things in terms of domestically. He was largely responsible for the collapse of the country in terms of his policies when he first came in. And the Slovaks especially really disliked him. And so when uh, when Mecha punched him in the nose, um, he ended up getting massive popularity because of that. But he was kind of a tin pot dictator. And it took Slovakia, you know, five to ten years to recover from, uh, from his rule. Um, now they're doing great. They're really doing well. Oh, that's sort of fantastic. Checks. I mean, the both countries are really doing well right now. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a uh, no. It's it's an interesting thing. It's one thing that I <clears throat> was very fast. I mean, there's a lot of things in the novel, but at the beginning, it talks about how he's he's going out and he's got to have like the two eyes, right? The objective eye and the subjective eye, and then throughout the novel, you sort of you go back and forth uh, between not only two different stories that that weave into each other in different times but also like one of the stories is told in the subjective voice and one in the objective voice is it what is is that is that have a relationship to the two different eyes is that i keep trying to figure out yeah, like thematically yeah no absolutely and and and, and i keep coming back to that theme in several different ways i i talk you know initially in the in the Siberian scenes with the, about the two eyes. Then he ends up. There's a lot of talk about to understand why a wall falls on a man. You have to understand not just what was wrong with the wall, but why the man sat beside it. <laughs> yes. um, and and the second half. The second half is is it seems less logical. Um, and and the book was very much in a, uh, a poking at analytic logic and. Uh, kind of standard rationality and rational discourse in the sense that it seemed to be missing a second something to give it give it life. Um, and so the whole book I was trying to write in terms of thematically, the, there was a space between these stories, a space between the, the different ways of thinking that I was hoping would create... Um, insights that, can, that aren't so easy to, to articulate directly in words. Um, yeah, the, 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 I, I really, I really enjoyed that. Cause it also, you, you, you mess around with a number of sort of literary conventions. And the, the first one you mess around with is the, uh, 
the convention of the reliable narrator. Right? So like there's not like the, the narrator is not necessarily reliable. So and by constantly switching between the objective and the subjective voice and you you keep reminding the reader throughout that this guy is drinking reindeer pee. Right? This guy so he's tripping or he's in a malarial fever for you know, big patches of the novel, this guy is like out of his fucking mind, right? So like you if you expect to get like a a rational, kind of clear you know, thinking from somebody like that, then you're 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 mistaken. Right? So, and I that's on purpose, I guess, right? I mean, that's yeah, yeah. It, it's on purpose, but I was also trying very carefully to um, not go fully into, say, magic realism land or the surreal. I there's a there's a tradition of of literature that's uh, very Czech, actually. That it's a it's a softer surrealism or or a realism that basically trying to walk the line between realism and surrealism without falling into either one. So when you mentioned kind of trying to have, you know, details that are that are accurately sourced, that's in order to reinforce the realism side and not fall fully into the the whole book as a reindeer pee uh, trip. Yeah. So I, I really wanted to walk that line. I didn't want the book to be realistic and I didn't want it to be surrealistic. I wanted to to try to thread that needle between the two or, or balancing the two again with the you can frame it in terms of the objective and the subjective eye um, or with the wall falling that's a it's a consistent thing that I was trying to do throughout the book is, is kind of not fall into either camp yeah um, no it, it doesn't I don't think uh, at any point it definitely did not feel like because you know magical realism can can at at its worst it can feel sort of cheap like you're just sort of like just making shit up you're you're not having any kind of laws within your universe you know so and it, it gets i mean if it's done really well it can be it can be fun i guess i mean kafka is definitely really good at it but like the but often it just feels like like it's just like an incoherent rant right so no i i didn't feel like it was like that at all it was uh you know when it did when it did sort of go into the fantastic, it did so either um, either in the voice of myth or in the voice of this is somebody who's like got malaria right now <laughs> or somebody who's, you know, high at the moment. Right. So it's uh, but your description of I, I was amazed when I got to the end and I read the, the epilogue where you you sort of you tilt your hand to show your cards and you say that they accepted this as your thesis at Harvard Law School? Like, that's, yeah, the, that's the amazing. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're so unbelievably brutal about about Harvard Law School students. I mean, they, they just, they well, come my, off my... As, as just horrible people. I mean, except for except for Buck, you know, he seems like a really nice guy. But the others just seem, I mean, you know, granted, what you're saying is exactly what I've heard from other people who've who've gone there. So it's not, uh, or or law school in general, like that, that McGill yeah. Law School. I, I've heard the same things. So my 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 supervisor was uh, the one professor at Harvard Law School who did, who's not a lawyer. He, uh, he Alan Stone. He was the former president of the American Psychiatric Association. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I, I ended up getting the one non-lawyer as a thesis supervisor. Um, and he did end up writing me an email because uh, I, I, as a thesis, I wrote it quite a long time ago. And then it went through a lot of modifications. And then he uh, he read it at the end to give me a blurb. And he said actually it had changed quite a bit, that it was no longer the same same environment as when I had gone through it and when I had written the book. Um, but I, I want to come back to, to one thing when you said, mentioned about Kafka, about mm-hmm. as an example of magical realism. I actually don't, I wouldn't consider Kafka exactly magical realism. Um, and I mean, Kafka, I, I love Kafka. And what I, I was actually striving to do something a little bit similar in that I see Nietzsche has a quote that says, uh, massacre it, but basically that you can't create because the prose is so linear that it can't come into any deeper insights um that's it's the most limit of the, of the art forms is, is prose literature and i think kafka his his you know people turning into cockroaches or whatever it wasn't in the service of magical realism it was in the service of trying to kind of jam up the logical mind in order to come to these you know almost like a zen koan where where you get caught up it with the logic ends up getting into a traffic jam with itself and it allows kind of a sideways movement that can create greater meaning that you can kind of touch without fully grasping in a, in a logical sense. Um, and that was part of what I was trying to do again with these different, you know, objective versus subjective, the balancing different ideas against each other. Um, so, well, I think you know most most readers of your novel, the the part that will be most obviously to you know pretty, to everybody influenced by Kafka is when uh, Mujik shows up at Harvard, <laughs> and he's dealing with those you know the gray turtles you know like the people who just like <laughs> dealing with the bureaucracy. I mean, that was just that was horrible. I mean, that was just like a description of dealing with a a kind of relentless, unthinking bureaucracy that, you know, well, because you're not on the list and the system, <laughs> like that sounded sort of, you know, in the, in the sense we use it in English, like Kafkaesque, like that, that whole area. But yeah, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. The, but there is something, there is something sort of fascinating. I had somebody on here, well, the, the last guest we had was actually the person who's the head of McGill Law School, actually, who's a who's not a lawyer, oh. who's a philosopher, who's you know this has been ever since like Martha Nussbaum went to uh, the uh, Ch- University of Chicago and became the. But she's at Harvard now. She's yeah, she was, but she sort of started this trend where law schools started um, getting like more and more like non-lawyers, you know, like philosophers and other people like that to get into the the law schools. And, but anyway, he was talking about this and he said, you know, it's this funny thing that the law is, and I, I kept like in the copy of uh, the novel, I, I wrote all over the pages constantly, but like I kept like thinking that this reminded me of something Daniel Weinstock had said, but that, you know, the law is supposed to kind of, create an honorable society and a, a society that functions and it works but it encourages people who are 
like totally lacking in honor, right? And this is what I think um, there's that that wonderful, almost like Dostoevsky um, scene where, you know, where the the Grand Inquisitor, almost like that, where that, that conversation that Mushtuk has with... Um, What's his name? The Sclera? Yeah, it was Sclera. That, that was that was an eerie, eerie conversation. Like it really, like, I, I in the margins, I was like, this is so like Grand Inquisitor in Dostoevsky, but where he says, you know, we need you, we need somebody like you in order to kind of bring back, uh, to remind us what the law is supposed to be for, right? Because you're so out of our our way of thinking, right? That we have to, we have to have somebody from the outside, which is, I mean, it's also a very, as you said, a very Nietzschean kind of idea, right? That this, these, these opposites are somehow how we yeah. find balance. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it, both, both. Yeah. Go on. Uh, both balance and, and kind of, I, I think these are one of these uh, archetypal elements in, in, all art, you know, the yin yang that the the female has the male within it, the male has the female within it. These things are constantly requiring this otherness that's that's external, that's that's unintelligible. Um, and I think that law type rationality and or analytic logic uh, generally it it kind of blinds itself to that. It's not wrong at any stage, you know, logic. As long as you're not making logical mistakes, there's no step that is wrong, and yet there's still a flatness to it if you don't bring in its its opposite. Um, yeah. Well, it's like what is uh, it's that wonderful line for Nietzsche where he says, like, uh, when you dissect a frog, uh, you should remember that it's dead. Right, so you you're dissecting it very well, and you're learning a lot of things about the frog. But there's something missing from your analysis of the frog, and and that is that it is dead, right? And so there's this exactly. uh, right, and there's this sense that um, you know, and one of the things that is really good is the the idea of of Mujduk being this this guy who he he really lives in his body. Right, he really lives. He's very kind of Im- embodied, right? And so he's uh, his his living is is that way. And so, and he he sees that if he's going to learn how to throw words like boulders, he has to become this person who lives much more kind of in an abstract sort of theoretical way, right? Which is uh, yeah, I mean that it's very interesting watching that. The, the corrupting process because <laughs> it sort of corrupts him too. I mean, as much as he, he, he thinks that he can avoid it. It's, it's almost like it's uh, language uses us as much as we use it. Right. So just by yeah. like getting into that kind of language, um, he, into being so immersed in that culture, it's hard for him not to, to avoid that, I mean, but but you you seem to have avoided that because you like you're a lawyer, you're a very intellectual guy, but you also do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and things like that. So, I mean, what is the what what is the balance for you? I mean, how do you <laughs> how, how do you or, or do you basically oscillate between extremes? Yeah, I think I think that's more accurate. I oscillate between <laughs> extremes, but maybe it's a long it's a long term balance, but not not a short term one. 
Not it's, moment to it's moment. Short-term yeah. extremism in the name of long-term balance. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I read your your bio recently about you know being completely unable to manually uh, against me a little bit, but that you're not very handy in terms of fixing things with your hands. <laughs> yes. And I'm the same way. I, I can throw. I, I can I can choke someone unconscious, but if I want the brakes fixed on my car, I give my car to my girlfriend. She'll fix them for yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm similar. So, I'm uh, I'm actually like. I'm I'm probably not even not nearly as good, but I'm I'm pretty good, at, you know, at fighting. I did martial arts for a long time too when I was younger and did competitions and things like that and stuff. I mean, I was I was never great, but I was like I was okay, and definitely like in a you know in a bar fight, I I I will do all right. <laughs> so uh, I have done all right. So, but I but I'm not handy in the sense of not I don't know how to do I don't know how to like fix stuff. I'm very uh, I have a terrible sense of direction uh, you know all all that stuff it's but but i i just think i kept thinking in in the novel you know that part like in plato's republic where i can't remember which book it is where they're talking about sort of the the proper training of the guardians of the republic and they say well you know we need to make sure that they do lots of physical training because um and and they're talking about the balance between being really embodied in like in your body and doing lots of physical you know weight training and wrestling and all these different things and then doing lots of sort of intellectual training and lots of reading and lots of study and there's this wonderful wonderful analysis where you know Socrates says yeah well we need to avoid the the extremes because we see that people who I'm 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 paraphrasing here. He says basically people who yeah. work out like gym rats who just like work out all the time, we can see that it it makes them very uh it it makes them oafish and kind of like like sort of vulgar and kind of boring and they they it 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 warps their soul in a particular way. But then he says, you know, we also see that people who just like live in in books and just live and study, that warps their soul in another way and his description of how it warps you sounds so much like you know a lot of academics i know which is he says it uh living in your head all the time it makes you very petty very um yeah. very you hold on to grudges for a really long time you're you're just you're like a very kind of nasty you're looking you're filled with you know what nietzsche calls you know like you're you're very like you're constantly kind of feeling bitter and you're obsessed you you, you feel like people are looking down on you all the time and stuff like that and he, he, you can see like Wuchuk, he he's got this magnanimous spirit like where he's he's so he's so kind of like is a perfect example of like what what Plato's talking about because he doesn't hold grudges he's he's really nice to his enemies <laughs> like he's very like, <laughs> like he's he's a good sport you know it's like uh whereas you know i i i've seen i've known plenty of academics that uh, somebody said uh, a comment like embarrassed them at a conference in 1993 and <laughs> they still fucking hate this person so much and you show them they're like, I can't stand that person. And they'll like tell you like, and it's you ask them, you know, what happened, and they'll say like, well, you know, 
he completely humiliated me in Atlanta, like at that conference, like, you know, decades ago. And I, I've never forgotten it. Right. So, I mean, I, I feel like yeah. you're sort of playing no, with some I, of these things, you know? Well, I, uh, my intention was to be a professor. Uh, I, while I was still at law school. I ended up publishing a couple of law review articles. Um, and I was dating a girl who, uh, was on her second doctorate. She was a professor, doctor, doctor, um, and whatever philosophy I know, it was just in trying to catch up with her because uh, you know we couldn't have an argument with socks on the ground without citing Heidegger. So I ended up, so I ended she, up reading. So Being she's Bach. No, she's Wida. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, it's just obviously not 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 a one to one correlation, but but she's um, a lot of it's Lena. So, okay, yeah. Yeah. No, not Lena. Wida. Wida. Okay. I was Wida, wondering. Yeah, the, the postmodernist. Yeah. The Heideggerian. Yeah. Um, and uh, through her, I, I was involved in, in the kind of the faculty circles much more than I would have been in a normal Harvard student experience. Um, and I saw how petty she was in the critical legal studies side of the, or, or camp, I should call it, mm -hmm. you know, there were war camps, there were war camps basically in law yep. school. And, uh, and the critical legal studies were heavily influenced by critical, uh, theory and it was it was such a kind of harsh political bitter backbiting environment that seeing it just as her partner it it scared me away from academia yeah um she was so, she was by far the most i, I got to say like she was the most disturbing character in the novel for me like i, I found cuz she reminds me of of a few people that i know um and she <laughs> very she's very very disturbing i mean one of the one of the people she reminds me of um actually like, killed herself in a very very spectacular way like her ex got together with um basically they'd been on and off for a long time and finally they broke up and he fell in love with somebody else and they uh they were fell madly in love and they got married and they went on a honeymoon and they came back from their honeymoon and she still had the key to his apartment and she let herself into the apartment and went and slit her own uh, throat and like was on their bed. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But she was like, she, so many of the things that she would say are just straight the kind of lines that Wida says. Like the, just word for the same kind of like relentless uh, kind of cynicism, perspectivism, and like the kind of like Central European dark, like like, like the same. You know, she she reminds me like of a few uh, deeply deeply troubled, unhappy middle aged women academics that, that I know. <laughs> so I was like reading her her lines. It was. It was unco like it was uncomfortable at times. Like I had to actually put the novel down. I was like, "Fuck, this is intense." <laughs> like, well, know, I I'm glad to hear you say that because I've had so many people tell me that she's such an unrealistic character. Oh my um, god, she's one of the most and, real characters but, in the entire novel. But yeah, but you have to you have to have a certain type of experience. I mean, the the woman on whom I based Rita was probably single most intelligent person I've known in my entire life. Um, she was, she had a mind that was just 
fascinating uh, and so sharp. Like I, I, I've never felt dumb in my life other than the first year I was dating her. We were together three years, almost four in the end. And it was, uh, I loved that, you know, having to try and play catch up intellectually. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, deeper into the relationship that I saw how, because I, I was a little bit like Mujduk. Mujduk is in some ways, like every first novel, there's strongly biographical elements. And he's kind of a young version of me. Um, and in, in the sense that naivete, I just found that darkness as a, as a, something fascinating. I was just like, wow, this is so different and so unusual that it must be interesting. It must be, I must be attracted, I should be attracted to it, or, and I was attracted to it. Um, and it took, it took a few years to just see how, <laughs> how disturbing and dark it was and how often it was not grounded in something real, but, um, in in theater of a of a weird sort, it's kind of like what you just described with the you know the the, suicide, the dramatic suicide on on mm-hmm. the bed. Um, now Wida is not just my ex; she's also oh no no yeah thousands, thousands of pages of critical legal studies and feminist theory and everything else that I read. Yeah. Kind of because I uh, I did end up reading a lot of Derrida and people like that, um, and there is definitely an aspect of of the ugly that. It's an attempt to clash schools of thought and ways of thinking and, and, and kind of Laban's philosophies, um, like life philosophies, sorry, into each other. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it's a novel of ideas, and, but I didn't want to – a novel of ideas very often fall into this trap where they become therapy or propaganda. Yeah, like they, the, they the sort of Saul that. Bellow trap. I mean, I love his stuff, but it, it it gets way too much into yeah, exactly what you're saying. It's like a, it's not a, it's not re- embodied, you know. Yours yours feels more like a novel of of ideas, but it's ideas um as subservient to to virtues, right? So you have like these different kinds of virtues that are and you can see the way that people prioritize different virtues kind of shapes their their soul you know their character like what they and so she she has certain virtues that she values a great deal and it has deformed her right so she thinks being like brutally truthful and being like performative and you know like seeing everything as power as as like that this is a good thing, right? But it, it ends up like just it creates this. And what's amazing is that like you, this guy who's like this unbelievable thug, right? Like, and yet Wida introduces him to a brutality that is unlike anything he saw in Siberia. Like, like yeah. she's there's a brutality and a kind of a that is so much more intense. And relentless than anything he encountered in this like harsh world that he comes from, which is amazing. I mean, like, but there's a brutality at Harvard too. It's just a different brutality. Yeah, um, and and that's in a sense the the attempt was to you call it virtues, and I, I think it's come from a philosophical, you know, background with the, the Greeks, but the, the way they thought of virtues in a sense, overlaps a little bit with, I was conceiving of it as, not as ideas per se, especially not political or psychological ideas, but 
ways of thinking, ways of perceiving, ways of kind of call moral frameworks or ways of managing the world and managing the relationship of you know being to to the world. Um, and then I didn't want to have I didn't want to start off with conclusions. A lot of novels of ideas they, they know what message they want to give, and that's what makes them flat. Mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of clash them into each other and see how they bounced and see who influenced whom. Like you said, that you know the corrupting elements of one or the other. And Mujdok, in a sense, is bouncing between these two very different brutalities, the, the cold, sterile brutality of, of Harvard and the kind of the postmodern swamp of Wida. <laughs> yeah. And, and in a, because, because he hits the, the Harvard coldness first he's attr- and he's repelled by it, he's attracted to its opposite, which is Wida. Yeah. But they're both equally totalizing, um, and they both kind of they're both brutal. They both end up sucking your soul out. Yeah. In well, well weed is also. I mean, you you have all these like really sort of beautiful illusions uh, to sort of Weeda being also kind of uh, sort of a a composite of she's like Delilah from you know the the yeah. Samson story, and she sort of takes this this strong guy and she introduces all of this like self-doubt and this like weird kind of like saps him of his strength you know his samson strength and stuff like that and then she's also in in a weird sense also similar to to like calypso or to in the odyssey like where she's she kind of like provides this sort of world that he can go to where there's no time and you can kind of escape from like your 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 quest right and you're supposed to be trying to get back yeah. to penelope but like it you can sort of escape from your quest and just sort of lose time in this world with this person who is uh like a witch <laughs> it's like a like a strange a strange witch who who is actually like a very lonely uh, person who likes to present themselves as very powerful and very independent, but is actually just living on an island, and is uh, very isolated and alone and and kind of scary, actually, in many ways, right? So, yeah, is it very? I mean, those those parts, by far the most uncomfortable parts of the novel for me were the parts uh, with her, because I just I I've I've heard that siren song, and I I know. Uh, I've felt that sort of a, that attraction to that kind of person, and I, I realized like how they're poison. I mean, they're absolutely like yeah. like they're poison. They they're miserable, and they ultimately make everybody close to them miserable. Like, and that's they're poison, uh, but they're initially they're initially fascinating. Yeah, they, they really it is really a siren song. It really is that initial attraction. I think particularly to intellectuals or people who who like to I, I'm not sure I, I can put my finger on on why it is or even exactly who it is but there's a certain type of person that is fascinated by, by the Weeda type character and I think it is smart people who feel like there must be more there must be more than, than just you know this cold sterile logic of Harvard and you end up kind of slingshotting towards somebody that is it's full of hints, like the dance of the seven veils, you know, these these possibilities of, of there being more, and then you end up spiraling into the swamp. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, no, it, it's 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 an ordeal that everybody has to go through. But and, I mean, I think that's a lot of the reason why the the kind of authors that are popular to college age students are authors that that have like certain qualities and like so it's it's not an accident that sort of 19 year olds love Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and they love you know Anne Rand and they they love like these you know people like that but when you my experience was that when I went back and read like there's this <laughs> Aaron Haspel, the uh, sort of New York philosopher and aphorist. He has this wonderful aphorism where he says, like, in hell, you're forced to read and reread all the books you loved at 20. <laughs> like, but, like, so you like, but there's, you know, I remember after becoming like a father and being like married and having like, you know, adult responsibilities and things like that. I remember going and rereading like these books that I, I loved you know, when I was that age and I'm thinking like, God, you're such a fucking douche. Like, you, like I can't believe you actually, like I, I, I did, I would read, and I, you know, I would still like some things about them, but a lot of the stuff I would think, wow, this is, this is, this darkness is incredibly shallow. Like this sort of, yeah. this uh, sort of like emo kind of, it, it just rings hollow to me. And then other people that I read, as you know a teenager and in my early 20s and and didn't and thought were incredibly boring like like for instance the stoics i went back and like read them in my 30s and i was like wow this is some deep shit <laughs> like this is actually really you know but it, when you read like epictetus at at 18 he just seems like a moralistic grumpy old man you know, he's like Mr. Miyagi in the Karate Kid. He just, he seems like, he seems like a grumpy old man who's just giving you like, yeah, wax on, wax off. And like, but then like when you think about it later on in retrospect, you're like, oh, that's actually, there's a lot of wisdom there, right? So it's, uh, yeah. No, but I, I think you do need, you, you can't short circuit that circle. I think no, every teenage boy can't. needs to go through a Nietzsche stage. Yep. But every adult man should grow out of it. <laughs> um, and you can't just kind of mm -hmm. jump to being out of it. Um, I totally I agree. Think, I think yeah. we, we go through that in, in, in jiu-jitsu sometimes where, um, you know, as you're more advanced in rank, you, you see some of the stuff that you cared about when you were, you know, a blue belt, and you think you want to tell people, you know, don't do that. But my view is you kind of have to go through a process. Yeah. Or... Or art, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of value in, in like, Picasso could paint hyper-realistically when he was 12, and then he went into the, you know, the cubism and everything else. Yeah. And then you see the people who just skip straight to the cubism, and it's never quite the same. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, you, it's you, not. I mean, there's that wonderful uh, sort of parable at the beginning of the spoke Zarathustra where Nietzsche talks about this, right? The three developments of the spirit that you have to begin as a camel, uh, which is a very dutiful, you know, you just like kind of learn. It's like doing your kata and pra practicing and you just, it's drill and it's, it's boring and it's repetitive and it's monotonous, but it has to be done. Right. And you, and then the camel at a certain point goes off into the desert and is transformed into a lion, and the lion is the the rebel who turns on all the established norms, and and the purpose of the lion is to slay a dragon, 
and the dragon is all the rules of whatever it is your art or your profession or your legal or you know whatever it is you're doing and and every, on on the scales of the dragon each scale has a thou shalt or a thou shalt not right and so then the lion slays the dragon and when the lion slays the dragon the lion is transformed into a child and then is a, a new beginning right a self-propelled wheel a something fresh and new and can sort of create out of out of its own being right so the i totally agree with you like if you try and sort of jump to the um right to the child stage or to the lion stage you can't like, you just can't do that you you have to learn how to like do your the basic boring things tasks of something like for instance painting realism or learning how to to punch and kick and block like you have to learn the basics first and then you can sort of rebel against your teachers to some extent and find your own style right but you can't just like jump to finding your own style it's just not possible that was one of the challenges in uh, editing this book because I, I wrote the first draft 16 years before I did the final edits. And oh, wow. I was, in, in doing the final edits, um, I could see a lot of what to me felt like flaws in my older, to my older self felt like flaws. And I was really faced with this, this uh, quandary of, of how much do I change the story um, to match my my older self, mm-hmm. and I thought, no, this book is by Alexander Baldassar the Younger, um, <laughs> and, and so I, I I left it at at kind of that level of the of the younger self, you know, editing it for for style and cleanliness, and, and maybe taking some of the weirder edges. But I, I was trying not to take the edges off, so it, it was this attempt to kind of edit it without. Like while remaining true to somebody that was, I could already see a bit at a distance. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was an interesting puzzle to go through. Um, yeah, I've seen I've seen a number of times I've been sent manuscripts of novels that were, you know, sort of written. Let's say like you know very similar to what you've just described, like written in the late nineteen nineties, uh, and they. They basically sat on it for a while and then they did like a big edit in the 2010s, right? And it it just looks like a bad haircut. Like it's just like a bad, like you've just, you're trying to sort of present like a like a like a Kunstroman and like a, some sort of yep. like a story about the development of an artist's mind. But like it, it sounds like it sounds like the end product at the beginning. Like I, I should see something that's rough at the edges and like kind of stupid and retarded at the beginning. <laughs> like I should see like I said she's like an idiot. Like and actually writing, especially if you're gonna as you do sort of alternate from the subjective to the objective voice constantly. When it when it's in the subjective voice, it should sound like somebody who's not very enlightened, <laughs> you know. And then yeah. by the end, they should sound like oh, he's learned a thing or two, you know. So. It's uh, no, I mean that that's that comes through, and I think that's uh, you either that was you or you had a good editor that was like willing to not take too much off of the top, you know. <laughs> but that's uh, but it, it oh, no, works. We had, we had 
we had some big big arguments. <laughs> there was some. I remember the one one line that we got caught up on. I had a line where Mujuk says that do you think I just fell off a strawberry? And the other changed it to strawberry truck. That do you think I just fell off a strawberry truck? And uh, I said no. It's, it, it makes too much sense if it's a strawberry truck. And no, said, well, if, it, if it's that. strawberry, it sounds like so an weird. old Slovak like expression from like you know time immemorial. Like strawberry truck sounds exactly. modern. Yeah, no, it has to be yeah, absurd. It's just, it's just a, yeah, yeah. <laughs> strawberry truck is somebody who's trying to avoid saying turn the truck, and and switching to a strawberry truck. But if it's itself a strawberry, then it fits the, the ugly much better. <laughs> <laughs> I love so, it when he swears when he when he's pissed off and he swears in Slovak, and you see like, the translations are just like. These totally insane things, like you're like a polka dotted Cinderella horse. <laughs> just, they're completely yeah, that's, that's wacky. A real, that's a real. My, my mom used to always always say the seven polka dotted hymen, like or, or swear. <laughs> and finally, I asked her as an adult because it was in Slovak. I said, "What's with the seven polka dotted hymen?" And she said, "It's it's Snow White hymen." And I had to process <laughs> Snow White hymen. Okay, I get it. And so I grew up my entire childhood hearing my mom talking. Like every time she stubbed her toes, she would talk about the seven polka dot hymen. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a picture of it and show you after we're done recording. But like on those two pages, I was I was I was drinking some coffee on my back porch, and when I read that line, I laughed so fucking hard I spit coffee all over the book. <laughs> it's all like covered in coffee. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, that is the weirdest, like, s- swearing expression I've heard. Like, it was... A- <laughs> but there's a bunch of them. Like, when he's swearing, when he's swearing at the cops, at the, like, like Vlad Vladimir, like, the guy who he thinks is, like, got yeah. his goatee trying to look like Lenin. And, uh, like, Vlad. <laughs> and, like, he, his... his when he really loses it and like hauls off on somebody and swears at them, it's so it's like sort of Borat. Like it's like it's really random, you know. Like yeah, but it works. Like so, your mother actually used to say that Snow White's yeah, like polka dotted hymen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what no, is the polka dots? The second botkovani. It's it's. It's only two words in uh, in Slovak, but it would be the seven seven dotted hymen, um, or seven hold. Or not, botka is like a little little dot. So a little. It like sounds a like dot. some sort of rare butterfly or or moth that uh, <laughs> that Mujduk would eat. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like like what is it that uh, there's that wonderful? We get them on Mount Royal sometimes. It's called like a an eight eight spotted forester. <laughs> That's the name of it. It's like it's a it's a member of the, I think it's a, a member of the skipper family. It's like, like you know moths, butterflies, and skippers. But it's called like. But I I, I thought afterwards when I told it to, uh, to my wife, she was like, "Oh yeah, it sounds like that eight spot eight spotted foresters <laughs> like that." Like but anyway, I guess spotted work. Yeah, spotted. Could be yeah. spotted is one. Word. I wonder maybe maybe at some point. It referred to, I, I was trying to imagine how does, you know, because it's fun to try and imagine where swear words come from, right? Like, and you know, like you can, like growing up in Quebec, like all of the swear words 
art refer to religious themes, you know, like like which you 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 include a bunch of them in your novel, actually. But uh, but uh, <laughs> but I was trying to imagine where that came from, and the the best guess I could come up with is that maybe at some point when they had people who would inspect the virginity that like of like <laughs> prospective brides that maybe like if they had spots that meant that they had like like venereal disease or I, I was trying to make sense out of you know it's like you just fell off a strawberry it's like trying to make sense out of something that's crazy right but like i was trying to imagine I, what, what was the origin of this like well, I suspect the origin. I suspect that one's not that old. I think it, it, it started with Snow White and Seven Dwarves, obviously. <laughs> um, but so I, I don't think that one goes into ancient history. Uh, the but it, it, it's a shame sometimes how how poor English is an insult because my my dad like I my first language my name Boldizar, um it's actually it's a common Hungarian first name Boldizar. Mm-hmm. Um Dad, even though ethnically we were fully Slovak, uh, from Austria-Hungary times, like my grandmother on my dad's side only spoke Hungarian, um, even though she was ethnically Slovak. And so my dad, he would still swear in Hungarian. And so his his swear words, and Hungarian is a fantastic language um, for swear, for swearing. And the most <laughs> common one was, go fuck God. Well, whenever my dad stopped his toe, he'd say, go fuck God. And then my mom was talking about Snow White's time. And, and, so, <laughs> and, then, and then you come to English and it's just fucking shit. Yeah, it's, 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 not, it's not as rich. That's, that's, uh, but, but there yeah. are people who, who managed to like sort of innovate. Like I lived in Baltimore oh, yeah. for a number of years and like they have such a thick idiom there and like all these expressions like really 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 like a rich rich kind of vocabulary and baltimore has like the linguistic variety in baltimore is crazy because you have in the ghettos you have um you have these populations that are very isolated and so and there's like uh, in in inner city baltimore there are there's well, there's a number of black ghettos which people know about because they watch like The Wire and things like that. But there's also actually uh, like a couple of white ghettos as well. Uh, one of them actually, uh, which is, you know, was we we lived right right next to it, and like it was like a really like right in the middle of Baltimore, this like white neighborhood that was like it made South Boston look like a functional community. Like, like it was so unbelievably heroin and methed out and just a complete shit show. And, but they had all this, this rich, rich vocabulary, like you yeah. know, stuff that you just could not understand outside of those neighborhoods. Right. And they had a lot of like really good swear words, but I don't know if they could like, I don't think, I don't know if they could compete with Hungarian, but that's actually one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Your, your last name, which you go by, uh, is that basically the same name as uh, like, like Baldazar Castaglioni, like the book of the courts here. Okay. It's the same. I was wondering, I was like, is that the same name? Cause like, so, Baldazar, that's the modified. that's the Italian version of 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 the yours is the Slovak the Slovak version of well, that Italian name. 
No, it's not originally Italian. It comes from Balthazar, one of the three three wise men or three kings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then in in Hungarian, it's Boldizar. Okay. But English doesn't have the mm -hmm. um, So when the Hungarian name is in, basically changed spelling when it went to Czechoslovakia, so this it dropped dropped an S within the name when it moved when it was used in Czechoslovakia, and then when it went from Czechoslovakia to Canada, we had to drop the Z sound. Um, and so it became Baldazar. Yeah, so there's, it, this, it, it, there's this Hungarian there's, guy. There's this Hungarian character in um, uh, Neil Stevenson's novel uh, Reemdi. Well, he's he's actually he's in his new novel too, the one that I I recommended to you, Fall. Uh, but yeah, but he's, he's a Hungarian, and he he actually he reminds me <laughs> to some extent he reminds me of. Uh, of the main character in your novel, but he's, he's a really huge guy also. He's like 300 pounds and his name is, uh, Changor and, uh, he's Hungarian and he's, he has a lot of the same virtue. Shandor. Huh? Changor or Shandor? You know, I've you only seen Shandor? it. I've only, I've only seen it like written in a book, but I think it was like Shangor. It was like C J, uh, Shandor. Okay, yeah, that would be different. How how would it sound? No, because Shandor is the Hungarian version for Alexander, but Shandor really? would be different with a CJ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like C C J or C Z. No, I think it's C C J. I think it's like it's really yeah. weird. Like it's not, uh, but it's it, but it's pronounced Shangor. That's what I was told by. I asked one of my Hungarian students, I'm like, how do you pronounce this? And they said, it's Shangor. And I was like, that doesn't look anything like this. And like, yeah, well, that's how it's pronounced. So, but the, uh, okay. yeah. Like your comment about the Baltimore. I have a, a group of friends here in Vancouver who are from Yorkshire in England. Um, <laughs> and after I, after I could finally understand what they were saying, it's, it's fascinating how, how rich and they're, they're all tradespeople like plumbers and, and, you know, carpenters mm -hmm. and they have an incredibly rich vocabulary for, uh, for insults. And it's, it, there's a real poetic element to, at one point, one of them called me lemon and I was like, well, what's lemon? <laughs> and he said, uh, well, lemon is short for lemon squeezer. And so, well, what's a lemon squeezer? And it, it, it's, it's basically a reference to geezer and geezer <laughs> is what you call a tough guy. Geezer is not an old man in, in, in Yorkshire. A geezer is a tough guy. So geezer becomes lemon squeezer becomes lemon. Yeah. And so have this, this, this inherent po uh, poetry to, to their, their banter. They're constantly insulting each other, which I, I appreciate. Um, but there's a real poetic element to it that kind of isn't, I mean, unless you're writing a thesis on it, it's kind of amazing <laughs> how much especially in Anglo-Canada where, where people are terrified of offending each other. <laughs> it, it's, it's so refreshing to be, you know, drinking with a bunch of plumbers from Yorkshire because there's, there's a real spark to their conversation. And it's so similar to your kind of inner city Baltimore. It's, it's interesting how these smaller communities sometimes who are, are inoculated against the fear and trembling of academia. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it. I will say, as a general rule, um, growing up here in Quebec, like 
we are largely if if you can get outside of the blast radius of McGill and Concordia, especially Concordia, um, for the most part in Quebec, we we have like avoided the worst ravages of politically correct culture. Like we've avoided it too. It's just not as much of a big deal here as it is in English Canada. So, and actually, a lot of the a lot of sort of the culture wars between Quebec and English Canada in the last sort of two decades have been over over this. So you, you have like this this uh, kind of PC culture that I think to a large extent. Um, came out of the states and it migrated sort of to the rest of the english speaking world and people who are outside of the english speaking world it doesn't always fit so well with them right so it doesn't um like here like for instance it's uh the stories that i've heard from Van- vancouver is probably the worst like the worst stories i've heard I've from vancouver the worst of vancouver yeah it's absolute absolute worst like it, it it feels like what is going on in vancouver very often is almost like like a kind of a puritan new england 17th century type situation where these people are just taking a um a particular morality to its like farthest conclusions that they can, right? Like, like really, really, I mean, like, I remember uh, my friend Becky was like sending me these pictures when she, she had a business there for in East Vancouver for a while called uh, Vic- Vicious Cycles, which was a cafe laundromat. And she was taking pictures of like, there were people who would like go all around the neighborhood and put up like flyers and posters all over the neighborhood about like an ex-boyfriend who had, you know, supposedly been like, you know, I, you know, not like, oh, he chopped up my, my dog and fed it to his cat. Like, like just, he was like, you know, mean and not very considerate. And he said some like, <laughs> and they would go all around like and post these posters. This guy is, you know, whatever Ryan from Edmonton. Like he is like a misogynist, and you should totally avoid him. And nobody should like give him a job or date him or be friends with him or like. And this was like, she showed me this. She took a picture once of this one like kind of message board place, like in a public area, and it had like twelve of these posters on it. And I was like, this is insane. Like this is absolutely yeah. insane. Like they're tr- sort but it's of tr- fascinating how often, how often that goes with like the, the the cultural landscape here in Vancouver is is really sad. There's a you know, there's one main art gallery and it, it it's not a good one. The Vancouver Art Gallery, the whole art scene here is is uh, really far behind. The intellectual uh, discourse here is it, it's activism seems to take the place of of real intellectual discourse or cultural discourse. Everything's about activism and, and kind of really flat politics. Um, and it's interesting to me how often those things seem to go together. People who've actually, who are truly well-read, even in feminist theory, for example, are less likely to be as dogmatic and as, as activists as people who seem to have a very, very shallow knowledge base. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I know. I wrote a, a whole article about this a few years ago called uh, "The Half Stupid," which was essentially, yeah. <laughs> in many ways, it, it, essentially it was like a kind of a a paraphrase of one of Nietzsche's aphorisms in the Gay Science, where where he talks about how uh, what we would call activism, and he says like, "Who is it that is most attracted to cheap moralism? It is always people who are." basically ruled by envy and a desire for vengeance who are essentially lazy, not that smart, not that motivated. And so they're not really willing. They're what you would call like blue beltism, you know, like uh, they, they never really like follow through on everything, on anything. And so they, their way of sort of asserting dominance over people who have actually followed through on things, you know, lots of things is to say, okay, fine. Maybe you're like harder working than me, or you have more money than me, or you're tougher than me, or you're smarter than me, or you're, you know, whatever, fill in the blanks, whatever. Um, but I'm a better person than you. Like, and so like they basically sort of take a really strident kind of moral position on something. Right. And it can be anything. Right. Um, and that is their, their sort of, pathetic way of trying to like assert dominance over the people around them it's like uh it, it's sort of a an ugly version of something that everybody sees in their family where you have like like an older sister or an older brother who's like super successful and so the the younger sibling is like well i'm cooler than you, <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. i'm except this is like the the cooler than you can be a lot of fun actually um the i'm better than you yeah, there's no, is, playfulness, there's no, no playfulness. There's nothing fun or pretty about that. It almost always yeah. ends in like badness, right? And that that to me was all my experiences of Vancouver have been. I mean, I love the the ocean and the mountains and the the rainforests and the the animals and the the eagles that are as common as crows. I mean, my God, that just blew my mind. But I I, I love the the sort of the the environment of of BC, but the human environment. Oh, yeah. horrible. You, you, have a, you have a choice between when I, when I moved back to Canada um, I, I was trying to decide between Montreal and Vancouver and um, for me I mean, it, was, it was in the end determined by my ex-wife but um, for me it felt like a choice between nature and culture yes and, and in the end with a small, small child I chose I chose nature over culture but now that my son is 13 you know we just spent a year in Montreal we were there for 14 months he was uh filming a TV show produced by a certain Soleil. Mm-hmm. And um, he did not want to move back to Vancouver. And he was, he was you know, 12 at the time, and you could already tell the difference. <laughs> that, you know, Montreal, Montreal is alive. Vancouver mm-hmm. feels like, like, it, it, like it's dead. Um, and we live right on the river. Uh, I go and you know, throw boulders in the river to make a little pool for the kids <laughs> every, every spring and summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I love... Not, we've had two months of sunshine and, and 23 degrees, 24 degrees now. Mm-hmm. Where, so, I, you know, Montreal winters are brutal, but it, it's, it was such a drastic kind of example of nature versus culture. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, um, I listened to my, my sons are a little bit older than yours. They're 15 and 17. And, uh, and, but, you know, they have they're at the age now where they they have parties right where they have like their friends over and stuff like that and you know basically when they have a party 
my wife and I, we just sort of like hide in our bedroom and like we, you know, our, our rule is like, you know, in case of emergency, break glass. It's like if if the cops show up or if like somebody gets hurt, come and knock on the door and like I, I will come and solve your problem. But other than that, we're just going to leave you alone and you leave us alone. So, uh, but you know, sometimes I'll be going uh, going out to the kitchen to, f- you know, fix myself a drink or go to the bathroom, and I overhear, like, some of their conversation, and, like, their conversation is at such a high level, like, with their yeah. friends. Like, they're actually, like, I mean, they're totally teenagers, but, like, they're, they have the kind of conversations that you would find in uh, in Prague or in like among teenagers like like they're like civilized fucking teenagers like they're they're not they're not what i hear when i go down to the states to hang out with relatives and the teenagers are just these <laughs> petulant little fuckers like and they're just they just like kind of boring and you know they, they don't have i don't know it's it's they're like i really like their Tristan and Indy, like I like their friends. I th- I find them interesting yeah. people. So I can I can already tell like at sixteen, you know, it's like you can see sixteen, seventeen. You're gonna be a really interesting person. Like you can already see it. You're like I, you know, whatever you do, even if you end up in jail, you're gonna be an interesting prisoner. Like you're <laughs> like you're gonna be interesting. <laughs> yeah. You know? And then you see yeah. other people, and you're like you you're never gonna be interesting. <laughs> like it's done. And I thought I saw I saw you had Jonathan Hyde. On, uh, on your podcast a while yes, back, yeah, yeah, and I think he covers he covers the, the you know, the, the cause and effect there pretty well with in, in coddling of the American mind. Mm-hmm. You need you need a variety of inputs. You need the freedom. You need to avoid safetyism. Like when we were in Montreal, Samson was eleven when we moved moved there. Twelve most of the time while we were there, and I would tell him until dark take a Bixie. After dark take an Uber. Be home by midnight. If if I were to do that. Here in Vancouver, I'd have child services on me. Yeah, but in Montreal, it was it was accepted that a kid could, uh, you know, bike around by himself, take an Uber in the evening. It helped that most of his friends on set were older than he was, um, yeah. so he actually kind of jumped a couple of years ahead. But I've always been as free range as I thought I could get away with, without getting, you know, in trouble with the with the system, um, and it pays off. Like, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's that's the same. Like wrap your kids. Yeah. No, Tristan and Indy, like they've walked around since they were quite young. They've gone to the to the park by themselves. They've gone. They like by the time they were sort of, you know, 11, 12, they were going with their friends in a pack to in the middle of the night to to climb up to the top of the mountain to like look at the city by night at like, you know, 11, 12 at night kind of thing, like a bunch of them by themselves, That's... you know. So and they would have these adventures, but but the the understanding was always like it's free range, but it's free range with like street smarts, right? Cuz these are not like country kids. These are they're not oh. suburban kids, they're urban kids, which means like they are um uh I mean, I remember we would always we would see the difference when we would go down to the states and hang out with my wife's family and they would this is when the boys were young. And I mean, now they're like, you know, Tristan's like six one, and Indy's like five five ten, and they're they're strong and they're like pretty solid, and so they're not they're not afraid now. But when they were younger, 
uh, when we would go down to the States, they would not like go up and kiss, you know, relatives and be like really kind of solicitous of adult sort of attention and things like that. And people would say like, oh, they're not friendly and everything. And, and we would have to explain to them, we're like, these kids don't get minivaned to all of their sports and their activities. Like they live in a city, you know, they, they walk over like homeless people and like they, they're, they are like wary. These are like little wild animals. Like they're, they're not like, they're not trusting of strangers and you know, sorry, but you're, you're a stranger. They see you once a year. Like they're not going to come up and be all familiar with you. Like, Whereas, like the no, the suburban me. kids would be unbelievably trusting, you know, because they live in this little bubble. It actually scares me. My, my biggest concern about my son growing up in North Vancouver is exactly that lack of an immune system for you know urban danger. I, I've never lived this. I've, I've lived all over the place, um, and Vancouver is the only city I've ever lived in where young guys walking past each other will not have that that moment of eye contact where if you look too short a time you're potentially a victim or a mark if you look too long you're looking for a fight here men there's no interaction like that they don't size each other Montreal up has it. they don't size each other up at all um they'll just look at their feet or their phone there's absolutely no awareness of their environment of context and people here would consider that positive but i think it's it's you're just you're losing your ability to to remain aware of your surroundings. I guess you're a fully a domesticated animal. You're like, you have exactly. no, you have no, yeah. I mean, they, that's why when I said that they're, they're sort of street smart and free range, but with, um, with, uh, kind of a, a knowledge of the dangers of the world. Like, okay. So I can, I can give you two examples that are sort of obvious examples. Uh, one of them is that like with the other parents, you know, we just made it very, very clear to, to our boys like okay well if you uh if if ever you're leaving like an event or a sport event or like some a concert or a school thing uh if there's if there's girls with you you walk them to the to their door like you walk them home like to their door all the time you never ever leave them to like walk home by themselves like when they're younger which i guess in maybe in north vancouver that would be considered sexist like here it's just <laughs> considered like you know yeah. like calculating probabilities of badness so uh but that so like always like tristan or they would like t- walk their female friends like to the bus stop or the metro or the house like directly or even take the you know to their house until they were safely home and the other parents expected that like that's what yeah. you, you would do, but but also it even extended to like racial politics, where uh, one of one of my my son Tristan's like closest friends is black, and uh, his his mother was worried about like his increased danger from police, you know, walking home like at night by himself and stuff like that, and so up until like. Up until like just a, a year or two ago, um, his mom would like insist that Tristan walk home with him at night all the time. Like she didn't want him to be alone on the street, like without this super tall, blonde, blue-eyed boy, right? Whose dad knows most of the cops, but anyway, <laughs> like, but um, but uh, like 
so it's it's sort of it's free range, but it's like it's sort of just recognizing the danger, the inherent dangers of the world. That the world has sharp edges, and yeah. and and hard surfaces, and you can like have a lot of fun in the world, but you just have to know that they're there. Like you can't just be like buried in your phone, like you're describing, and walking down the street and not paying any attention to your surroundings at all. Like just not. I mean, that's. Yeah, I, I remember like uh, Joe Rogan had um, uh, what's his name? The guy who you know he writes all these kind of interesting books that sort of venture into wackiness usually at the end. But I'm blanking on his name. But anyway, he was talking about like you know he uh, the author said, well, yeah, you know, like I, I had to stop smoking weed for a while because it was making me too paranoid. And like Joe Rogan was like, yeah, I kind of like the fact that it makes me paranoid because I feel <laughs> like he's like, I feel like that paranoia is basically just me recognizing how dangerous my surroundings act and mysterious my surroundings actually are. Like, I don't think it's, he's like, I don't think it's psychosis in the sense of imagining things that are not there. I think it's just a, a heightened awareness of how dangerous your environment actually is, right? It's it's sort of like if you see somebody who's just been in a really bad, I mean, I, I've, I've been through this, somebody who's been through a really bad car accident, right? Uh, when they get back in the car and start driving, like, they're so, you know, they, for, for a couple months, at least after a really bad accident, they don't fucking talk on their cell phone when they're driving. No. <laughs> like they don't fuck around with the radio when they're driving. Cause they're like, holy shit, this is like the most dangerous activity that I do. And they, they're yeah. much more sort of like aware and, and conscious. And, and so Joe was saying like, yeah, I actually like, I like that. Cause I, I feel more alive. Like that kind of like heightened awareness like that i feel kind of uh so yeah no i i know exactly what you're talking about that that sort of when guys pass each other my my friend jimmy in baltimore i'm sure he's listening hi jimmy uh but uh but jimmy jimmy calls it the the big guy nod yeah <laughs> he's like exactly. he's like when you walk into a bar like if you're a big guy jimmy's like a big guy and like the the bouncer will just look and like the big guy nod <laughs> I see yeah, you. There's, there's no big I see you. I am not a. Yeah. I I mean you no harm, but I see you and I recognize that you are somebody who could be a threat, but you're not a threat at all. <laughs> it's, yeah, I have I have, a, I have a friend here from Serbia, and uh, he, uh, he 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 disagrees with me. He, he loves it here because he said it's so exhaust. I mean, Serbia is the other extreme, but he said whenever I go in a bar, it's so much mental work to. Make sure that your eye contact and your level of nodding and everything is just perfectly calibrated. And he's out of practice. <laughs> and in Serbia, people will, will, they'll carry machine guns around. So he says it's every oh, time he goes to a bar. They're crazy. Just, Serbians are crazy. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, so he, he gets exhausted whenever he goes back home. He says, I love it in Vancouver. I can just <laughs> fall asleep and nobody will mug me. Nobody will shoot me. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny because I, yeah, no, there's got to be a good, like, healthy golden mean between, but, you know, it's funny because I, I, um, well, first of all, there's a big split in, in Montreal between the French and the English culture, right? So I, I remember just to give you an example, like when I first started like going out to bars and stuff like that, um, in Montreal when I was a teenager, there was, I, 
there was such a split between the French culture and the English culture. So if you went to a bar that that had on a Friday night, let's say like I don't know. I actually don't know what the real capacity was, but let's say it was like a, a bar or club that had like two floors and could maybe like have uh, 150, 200 people like on a Friday night, Saturday night. Um, in the French equivalent of that, they would have like no bouncer, like at all. Yeah. They would have nothing but like the, the bartenders and like the waiters, waitresses and stuff like that. And if there was a problem, which there almost never was, they would call the police, right? Uh, in an English bar on Bishop or Crescent, which was like the equivalent size, they would have a team of bouncers that was yep. like what you describe in your novel, <laughs> like when they go to the the um, the ratio bar, like with yeah. the the ratio, like where they have like a team. You know, it's like what, like ten guys that beat on Mujduk, like outside, like <laughs> smash his head against the the wall and stuff like that, like. Uh, like they would have like a team and it's just like, yeah. Sorry. I I just want to jump in there because that scene was taken from a Montreal bar. I put it into, into, uh, into Harvard, but I did get beaten up that way. (laughs) I I ended up fighting whenever I went to an English bar in Montreal, I got in a fight with the bouncers. Oh my God. Okay. Don't say, don't tell me, don't tell me. I'm going to tell you right now exactly what bar that, that happened in. (laughs) It's okay. Uh, drum roll. <laughs> uh, well, you, you you know I'm right. It's from Bishop, right? Um, no. I, Where I, was I lived it? On Bishop. it? Where was, Peel was Pub. it? Huh? Peel Pub. <laughs> well, the yeah the the English bars they would have um they would have like the the big like meathead steroid like bouncers like they look like spark plugs you know with the skinny legs and the huge chest and like they did not have good bodybuilder training but anyway but like they they would have like the and and they would have the headsets where they're talking to each other like little fucking wannabe secret service guys uh anyway and i remember it was just like at at three o'clock when the when the bars let out it would just be this like this melee on the sidewalk of like fist fights and and fight and in the french places there would be like none of that right it was just like a, yeah. a huge cultural split right uh, and no, I, I definitely preferred hanging out no i had a friend, quebecois girlfriend for a while and after that i couldn't go back to the english side <laughs> <laughs> but it was funny cuz growing up here then when i went to baltimore um for for grad school I remember the first time I I ever was like I because I was really into to hip hop at the time, and so I went out to like these a lot of hip hop clubs in Baltimore, and you know very often I would be like you know the only white person in the entire place or one of the only, and I'm like I'm not a big guy I'm five eight I'm not like I'm not a big guy at all, and uh, and there was I remember first time this happened where I'm walking in. A club in this hip hop club in like this crazy dangerous neighborhood. I only found out this later on, but like this crazy dangerous neighborhood in Baltimore, where like taxis will not even come to this place if you call a taxi. But uh, I, I had no problems ever in Baltimore. But so I'm in this club and like 
I'm I'm pretty I'm getting pretty drunk. I'm having a good time and stuff like that. And I'm walking to the bathroom and I bump into this wall of a man. You know, this this guy's like just like solid muscle, like about like six five. And uh his immediate response was like, oh, Are you okay, man? You okay? Did you spill your drink? No? Oh, that's so good. You having a good time? You having a good time? Uh yeah, I'm having a good time. Uh all right, well. Take care, brother. And like, <laughs> and this happened like a few times. And I was like, you know, because like here in Montreal, if you're especially if you're in like a kind of an English bar in like Laval or Montreal, like if you bump into some like like Italian or Greek guys, be like, hey, you want to go? <laughs> you know, like what this <laughs> fucking do is like Rocky impersonation. You want to go? Fucking go? Like, uh, but everywhere I went. Yep. I was in in Baltimore the entire time I was living there for years. And my wife and I, we went out, like, so much. Like, we went out a lot. And uh, we never saw a fistfight in a Baltimore club or bar. Like, not once. And the thing is, you know, I realized very soon after being there, it's because people are all fucking armed. Yeah. And people are actually really dangerous. So you do not provoke violence for stupid, frivolous reasons. Like you don't yeah. like if you bump into somebody in a bar, that is not a reason to like start a fight with them. You have no problem with this person. And there's, you know, like like you push them. It doesn't matter if it's like a five foot two guy. You could pull out like a hand cannon and like blow your head off. So like there's no reason. So people are very, very polite. And it just, it was an interesting sort of introduction for me into sort of, you know, sort of Mujduk's world, right? It's an honor and shame society, right? And in an honor and shame society, yeah. there are like, uh, there are good and bad things about it. But one of the really good things is that like people, people presume that the, the people you're dealing with are dangerous, or at least they're related to somebody who's dangerous. So you don't you don't mess with somebody for stupid reasons. Right. Yeah. Whereas like my, my cousin moved to, uh, to Ottawa. He started working for trans transportation Canada. And he said, he started going out to like bars in Ottawa and he's like, Oh my God. He goes, it's like three times worse than, than peel pub. Like then, then the worst Montreal English bar. He's like, these guys yeah. get drunk and they basically try to like, fuck everything that moves and if that doesn't work they try and fight everything that moves like they, they sort of and and there's just there's no sense whatsoever that doing this could kill you whereas in but baltimore even it's told even a, a, a pissed drunk guy is so polite <laughs> they're, they're so polite because they just recognize you're like you're talking to rattlesnakes and scorpions like there's yeah. there's no reason. But that's that's true even that's true even without guns. Just the problem is that most people haven't been exposed to enough actual fighting to really understand how much can go wrong. You know, there could be a corner on a table that you hit your head or you hit the guy you're fighting with head, and it's done. Like it's so many, and and one thing, most of these people who are fighting, they're so pent up and repressed, and there's so much anger or something, insecurity under the surface, that when they actually do, do get in a fight or in a situation, 
the the peacock aspect takes over. Yeah, they um, have like three think... hits, and then they're expecting it to be broken up. Yeah, and they've never um, had a fight where nobody breaks it up, and where you actually get your up? nose broken and like your fingers yeah. broken and like you're sore for like two weeks that you can barely like and you're pissing blood. They've never had that experience. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, they've never seen like I I know guys who are you know, hundred and sixty pound guys that that can can you know we train with a lot of SWAT guys from the SWAT team and when they first come in you'll have these giant guys from the SWAT team, and you know hundred sixty pound guy will tie them up in pretzels. Yeah. And they're they're kind of shocked because but if you look at you know police will get eight hours of combat training, um, U.S. military gets eighteen hours. If you're in the special forces, you get another 36 hours. So you're you're dealing with 54 hours of training, and you're you're thinking of a special forces guy. And then you have somebody who's been doing jujitsu for 10 years. He's got several thousand hours. You or know, somebody from the Mossad who's Mossad who's got like or Mossad, yeah, or, a thousand hours as well. MMA, professional MMA fighter. Yeah. I, I had a guy try and pick a fight with me on the airplane in Montreal when I was landing, <laughs> and uh, I was like, "You're picking a fight with me." As we're deep disembarking on the plane, you have no idea what my skill set is. You're on a plane, so we're going to be arrested the minute a punch is thrown. Like, are you really kidding me? It, it, <laughs> and I don't think he actually wanted to fight, but he knew that it was a safe, it was a safe environment to be as belligerent as he possibly could, sort of throwing the actual punch. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's I walked uh, away from it, of, of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, the last time, I mean, the last time, I mean, like, I don't know, like, uh, when when's the last time, aside from like, sort of, sort of in a dojo or something like that, like, when's the last time you you actually like got into an actual fight, like in the street? Like, how old were you? I was twenty nine, okay. and it was uh it was a beautiful, beautiful fight. It was uh, it was the Cinco de Mayo. I was Cinco de Mayo. I was living in uh, San Francisco, and I was in the Hispanic part of town. And uh, I was walking with my now ex-wife, and this guy driving by in a Bronco stuck his tongue out, making these obscene gestures. Yeah. And uh, so I, and then he drove by, and then he stopped at a red light. So I uh, I jogged up to his car and I knocked on the window, and. Uh, I said, you know, that was kind of rude. And he jumped out and said, do what you got to do. And I said, no, I did what I had to do. I, I you know, I, I told you that what you did was rude. And yeah. I was an attorney in the States at the time. But if I, <laughs> if I get arrested for fighting, I get disbarred and yeah. deported. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I didn't really want to be in a fight, but I was just like, no. What I had to do was to comment on what, on what you did. Um, he said, no, do what you got to do. And by then, about 30 guys had formed around us, all Mexican. This guy was Mexican, mm-hmm. and uh, he started calling my. Somebody asked him what happened, and he said, "You know, La puta." And so he called her a whore. So I said, "Well, now I have to." Mm-hmm. And so then, I, I it was honor <laughs> culture, right? And mm-hmm. um, so I jumped on him, and he, he was a big guy, and we had this fight. Was most fights are over quite quickly, but this one was going for about three minutes where we were just exchanging. Oh, wow. That's up. really long. I was punching in the ribs. He was punching me in the head. We are just tied up, and we, neither of us we – it was a really even match. Um, mm-hmm. Neither of us could kind of break away. And finally, uh, a, a woman who had her head on really well 
to scream police. And when she screamed police, we both disengaged. Because neither of us could disengage without giving the other person an advantage, mm-hmm. the way we were tied up. So when she yelled police, we disengaged at the same time. He got back in his Bronco, drove away. And I was so impressed that there were 30 Mexican guys. He was a very white, blonde guy fighting a Mexican guy. Not a single person intervened. <laughs> there was, and they were both, uh, the entire group was, was cheering and happy. And they were kind of complimenting me. They were complimenting him. And it was such a positive uh, interaction. And, and I have, you know, there are a lot of, Mexico has some amazing uh, writers who talk about this like old school machismo mm-hmm. culture. Uh, they really have a, uh, and they mock fun of kind of North American suburban culture. And, and there's a, uh, Ortega y Gasset, I think, has this quote about, those kindliness, kindly sinister beings, the North American mothers and wives. Um, and yeah. I, I'm a big admirer of, of Mexican culture and kind of that, that old school machismo that's really, it still maintains a sense of honor um, yeah. where you would never think about jumping in to help one of their own because it was a fair fight. We were both the same size. The fight was even. Nobody was down on the ground. Um, and so I, it was just a, like it gave me a whole new kind of appreciation. I mean, I've seen it elsewhere in, in Mexican culture, but I, I really lived it in that moment there. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I, my, mine is yeah. not nearly as cool as that, but it's, it's also, it was, I was 29 and I was out for like wedding anniversary with, with my wife and we like had, well, we had two kids at that point, and so it's time for me to be, like, grown up and everything. But, like, and we went up, we had a babysitter for, like, the whole weekend, and so we're going to, like, have, we're going to stay out really late. We're going to go to, like, a show. We're going to all this stuff. Anyway, so we go to this club, and it's a club where I know the owner, I know the bouncers and everything. It's it's right on, like, corner of uh, Prince Arthur and Sanaa, like, and um, and I we go in, and we're, we're having a really good time, and then... There's like these guys, and I swear that they they looked like a bunch of the guys from like the night at the Roxbury, <laughs> like, <laughs> like totally, like like they were all coked up, you know, from Laval and stuff like that. He's like, anyway, like, and one of them, uh, you know, big big guy, like just just a, like he just looked like like a walking stereotype like a big baby like his he's he's 24 his mother probably still like d- washes his underwear he still lives at home like you know in shamity or whatever anyway but like and uh, and, he, and he like uh and he's like really coked up and so he's he's just walking around and he's not at all like kind of paying attention to like the space around him and he bumps into into my wife and he like he spills her drink like all over like the dress that I got her like that day that she's just like wearing. And she's like, What the fuck? You know? And rather than saying like, Oh my god, I'm so so sorry and uh I I'm really, really sorry. I, I'm I'm a little, you know, I'm having fun. I'm a little fucked up. I'm sorry. Like, I'm really sorry that I it, rather you, you could totally like deal with that so easily. And like, I'll go get you another drink. I'm really sorry. Uh, you know, there's so many ways to easily smooth that over. 
instead he goes into this like sort of Anne Rand psychopathic like I'm like a everything's about me kind of fucking asshole kind of rant. He's like, look, I'm having a really fucking good time tonight and don't fuck up my night. Don't fuck up my night, bitch. Like <laughs> she looks at him. <laughs> And she's just like, I'm like sitting behind and I just like walk over and well, that was it. <laughs> so that was like, um, and it, but it was the same thing though. Like his friends, although they clearly had been friends with him since he was five, his friends didn't intervene at all. They were just like, you know, we love you, but like, look, you're probably six inches taller than him and he's in the right. You just like yeah. spilled a drink on his, on his woman and then like insulted her and pushed her. Yeah. It's 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 done. <laughs> like but that I, was I the that was that, the last time. I firmly believe that maintaining those kind of old school um and I'm not a traditionalist generally but by any means, but maintaining those old school unspoken norms of violence is a much better solution than trying to have the zero tolerance approach that, that a lot of Anglo North America is taking. Because there's a there's a reason that men tend to fight when they're basically big boys. You know, it, it there's a when you're young the testosterone is pounding into your head, um, you the aggression will come out. Every animal species on the planet, every mammal does, anyway, does it. And by pretending it away, by trying to say all violence is, you know, unacceptable, we have equated everything from two equal sized guys fighting until one basically submits to you know pulling out a gun and blowing somebody away mm-hmm. and so we've turned we've turned these these male rituals into power rituals instead of being about you know in the old days if you kept kicking a guy when he was down or if you pulled out a weapon during a fist fight then you lost all honor mm-hmm. you were basically a coward mm-hmm. um, and we've taken away that that natural r- restraint by saying all violence is wrong and then well what's to prevent somebody from pulling a knife out so we've turned these these things that we have become that we used to be about a personal assertion of of honor or whatever but also protecting people that you care about right like yeah, protecting exactly. people like I, I remember i had this wonderful moment where i was just like oh I love you guys. I'm so glad you you were raised right. Uh, but like I had this wonderful. We were watching my sons and I were watching this show. Did you ever get into Six Feet Under? No, I never. The saw show. That. The anyway, but there's this one episode. It's a very disturbing episode, actually. But uh, it's about like it's based on something that actually did happen. Um, but there's this uh, these two these two young like gay guys and they're, they're out partying. They're out like for the night and like they're at a bank machine and they're taking out money. And these two, like it's actually a father and son, which is extra disgusting, but like in a pickup truck are out sort of looking to beat up. Like they're going through like the gay part of the town looking to kind of beat up and like with baseball bats, like gay people. Right. And so yeah. they see these two guys and they were like, you fucking faggots. And they jump out and they've got like baseball bats. And these two guys like start running, right? And uh, and one of them falls, like trips and like falls on the ground and he's beaten to death. Like they beat his brains like right out of his head. Like, 
and uh, and the other one like runs away, right? And then it goes into the episode, which is one of the most powerful, best written episodes of that entire series, which is one of the best TV series ever. But uh, both of them, when we were watching that, their response was they were, I mean, they thought everything about the scene was really, really disturbing. But they both just turned around. They're like, I would never leave my boyfriend down like that. Yeah. <laughs> like, they're like, I would turn back and like, you know, I would, I would fight with my boyfriend till death if need be. I would never like run away like that. Right. That's, yeah. that's, that that's has been, other, yeah. that has been redefined as toxic masculinity. Like how insane yeah. is that? Like that you would actually yeah, yeah. like stick by the love of your life. Like that's, it, why would you not do that? Like, I mean, like yeah, the whole toxic a, a mother, a mother wouldn't, a mother wouldn't leave her child back to be beaten to death. So then why would you leave your boyfriend or your girlfriend back? You know, yeah. or your husband or your wife. Like, why would you do that? Like, that's not toxic masculinity. That's like, that's, that's sort of love and care. Like, that's, that's nice. <laughs> like, yeah, but men, men, uh, stereotypically, men and women exhibit love and care. And, but you, like you said, a mother would pretend her, protect her child just as well. Um, it's just, yeah, the, the toxic masculine conversation, I think, is, is, uh, is such a disservice to, the whole conversation um but that's a your, your your gay example it does remind me that you know and, and and your example of your your son's black friend like when the last time i was almost in a fight um or no sorry the last time somebody really aggressively tried to pick a fight with me other than the airplane i was in uh in brooklyn um and that was in kind of bad part of town which normally i've always liked bad parts of town i never had troubles if I was really in a, in a place with no white people, people say "Good evening, officer" to me because they assume I must be a cop <laughs> if I'm walking there. But I uh, actually had that in the Bronx. I was walking through the projects once, and everybody was saying <laughs> "Good evening, officer," trying to show that they knew I was a cop. Oh, in Baltimore, but, I figured out that the trick was because I, I couldn't get cabs in a lot of the neighborhoods I would go see cl- uh, shows in. And so I would have to walk all the way back to Charles Village, which is right next John, right next to Johns Hopkins University. I would have to walk all the way back to to uh, Johns Hopkins, like through all these horrible kind of the wire homicide in the street kind of neighborhoods. And people would come up and they would ask me. And I realized very quickly, well, I, the first time it ever happened, I realized, hmm, what is the smartest move in this situation? Well, a lot of the local economy, especially the street economy, is fueled by the drug trade. So basically, if I identify myself not as what I actually am, which is a drunk person, white person that's lost, (laughs) uh, walking home like a fucking idiot. uh, But if I identify myself as a consumer, well, then I suddenly become a known quantity. Right. So as soon as somebody came up to me as like, the fuck you doing here like i'm like uh looking to maybe get hooked up like and uh they're like how much you want right and i said i just a dime bag and so like i'd i would buy like like a ten dollar bag of like you know 
or a $20 bag of like heroin or Coke or something like that. And then just like <laughs> dump it in the garbage as soon as I got to a, like out of the, <laughs> that neighborhood. But if just by doing that, yeah. I was untouchable. Absolutely untouchable because at that point you're a known quantity and you don't touch a customer because if you t- if you mess yeah. them up they won't come back and they'll tell uh, you know and the drug trade is fueled by basically white people you know so that you can't maintain such a massive economy just by people in the ghetto buying stuff I mean that's a fantasy that only Fox News believes but like it's mainly it's lots of white people coming from the suburbs and buying stuff so if you rob them and carjack them, they're going to not come back to your neighborhood, which gives business to your competitors. So as soon as you identify yourself as a junkie, you are untouchable. Like at four o'clock in the morning, stumbling on the street, you are untouchable as soon as you're identified. So I was able to like walk around through those neighborhoods without any problem. (laughs) Like, so what is your Brooklyn? What is your Brooklyn story? So yeah, no, I guess the, the opposite end of that of of kind of not reading the cues right. I got so used to walking with nobody trying to pick a fight with me. At one point, I came back from Indonesia, and uh, I went out in a sarong, and uh, so I just had a sarong tied around my waist, and it was a hot summer day, yeah, um, and I walked through fucking the, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> I uh, it, it really I had people wanting to fight with me just because <laughs> they thought I was homosexual, mm-hmm. and. It, it it was a real kind of eye opener that, like, just changing how I dressed, and then all of a sudden, uh, and then the one time I you know I was wearing a sarong, no underwear. The last thing I want to do is again a fight, in, in, you know, <laughs> with just a very very thin piece of cloth that can yeah. be pulled off. Um, you get into a ground game that's going to get pretty revelatory. <laughs> yeah, revelatory and dangerous. Too many yeah. handles, right? Yeah, so, <laughs> but it's uh yeah, it, it it's. I, I don't want to kind of just. Skip that was right in Vancouver. No, no, this was in Brooklyn. Oh, Brooklyn! Right, 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 right. So yeah. you were in a sarong in Brooklyn, and they're coming. Yeah, okay, true story. The first two guys that I knew in Montreal who got really heavy into Brazilian jiu-jitsu, like before anybody, like we're talking like like way back, right? They were into this. Like nobody had heard of it, and. The first two guys that I knew who got really into Brazilian Jiu they were like such unbelievable badasses, these two guys. And they were also, if you would see them, <laughs> like I'll send you like pictures like from when we were in high school. <laughs> like they looked like 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 models, like from a high school like from like nine oh two one oh. Like they had like blonde hair, blue eyes, very they had like the, the really amazing big hair. Like like they were in yeah. flock of seagulls or something like, and uh, but they were unbelievable badasses. What they would do <laughs> is they would like they would like dress up like uh, in their like with like baggy pants and stuff like that, and they would walk through Angry Old Park and Parc La Fontaine holding hands. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. These guys are like totally straight. They were basically trying to like elicit gay bashers to come and not from like some ideological like we're trying to fight homophobia or they just wanted to get into fights. Like they would yeah. like they would walk into like dangerous situations and just like try and like 
get uh like I remember at one point this one I don't know if it's totally true. The the other the walking through the parks I know that that's true because I actually saw them do it. But like I I heard these stories about uh, about the one time it was Eric and Kevin. That's well Eric's probably listening. Hi Eric, I'm talking about you. But uh, but like the they, they apparently I don't know if you remember when you were in Montreal. Do you remember there was like all these like it would have been when you were at McGill. There was like all these like skinheads that would hang out close to Fufun Electric. There was like a... Oh, yeah, I used to hang out. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know the empty I, lot like right house. near there and all the like skinheads would hang out with their dogs and pit bulls and stuff like that right near there? Yeah. Okay. They would... <laughs> they would like go by there like these two guys, <laughs> these pretty boys, <laughs> and they would basically like where like starve david or like would yell out these like andy skinhead like, just because they wanted to get into a fight with these with these people and they were like they were like ninjas these two like they were just like unbelievably badass like but but i i thought of well i thought of many people when i was reading your novel but i thought of like eric and kevin as well because i was like that sort of like where when Mushoki, when he gets into the 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 fight with the the bouncer and he's like he actually feels kind of at home. <laughs> it's like the first time yeah. he's he's it's the first finally time something makes sense. Yeah. yeah, finally something makes sense. It's like open aggression. Like but uh but these yeah, I mean and these guys like if you talk to them now, like they're a couple years older than me. They're I'm forty four, they're like forty seven, these two guys. And they are the most mild mannered I have barbecues in my back, like just the most well-adjusted citizens with RRSPs and like, they're, they're totally normal. And if you ask them like what was going on, they'll just tell you, uh, I was high on testosterone between the ages of 14 and 20. I, I was basically I, I, I was... like, I was a high person. Like I yeah, was insane. I, I... That's exactly uh, that's the best description there is. I, I used to do almost the same thing. I had a friend who was uh, he and I would go in Hull because I, I went to high school in Ottawa. We go in oh Hull. Oh my where god! Hull is unbelievably badass back then. And uh, we'd we'd walk one in front of the other, separated by about you know thirty feet, and we would take turns who was first. And we'd walk into a group of people and, and say, "Watch where you're standing," and. Uh, if if they jumped on the one guy, then the second guy would come in as backup. If we, if we, walk, <laughs> we, we, we wouldn't walk together because they would think there was two of us. But if we would just walk one and then 30 feet behind the other one. And it was just, I mean, it, it, it didn't even wanna, it's embarrassing now in, in hindsight. You know, I was 19 at the time, 18. And it was, it was really I did, like I did all the same shit. I did all the same shit, yeah. And, like really, uh, like I'm, I'm totally embarrassed of, of it. You know, but like I, I did all the yeah. same things. Yeah. <laughs> like all, like I've had, you know, my like, I've never broken any major bones, but my, like, almost all of my fingers and toes have been broken, you know, <laughs> at least once. So, and it was all from that kind of testosterone high. It's sort of like yeah. people who are in recovery for, you know, drug addiction or alcohol, and they're like, oh, I did all these fucked up things, you know, those years I was drunk, you know, like, like when I yeah. talk about stuff I did then, I'm like. It's like, yeah, that's when I was like doing testosterone, and I, exactly. <laughs> like, 
like I was high on testosterone and I I did like yeah fuck you <laughs> I can't believe this stuff that, you know I read an interesting article about how basically civilization didn't form until human testosterone levels dropped significantly yeah um because uh you know we were just too much aggression in yeah. between people right and that's why when people say we live in a patriarchy I think, nah, our society doesn't really reward open testosterone. <laughs> it rewards much more of the Harvard approach, the the behind the scenes aggression, not the the direct blunt, you know, eighteen yeah. year old type of aggression. Well, and it's also it's really fascinating the way that um, testosterone levels are are sort of modulated, right? So, like, I mean, I'm sure you you're aware of this, but um, when when men, when fathers are are really sort of active with their children, like with babies, like sleeping with them and changing diapers and stuff like that, it causes. And this is not just in Homo sapiens sapiens. This is in lots of primates, dolphins, uh, elephants, like killer whales, like lots of different animals. When fathers are like very active as parents, their testosterone levels drop so far yeah. right and, uh, I didn't and know it's very but very and, it, and yeah. it's basically it's basically because you need like uh um my doctor was telling me that like he said you know if i had like 20 bucks for every time that i've had like a new dad come in to me and say like i don't know what's going on like i my sex drive is dropped like crazy. I can't get it up. I like I, <clears throat> and he's like, "Are you? Did you just have like a new kid and stuff like that? Or are you just like are you spending a lot of time with like a toddler?" And and I'm like, "Yeah." And he's like, "That's normal. <laughs> it's not the sleep yeah. deprivation. It's like your testosterone drop has have dropped like crazy, so that you don't kill this thing, <laughs> like so that you're more nurturing and you're more like." And and said basically like as soon as the kid is like like a little bit more independent and like walking and weaned your your testosterone levels are gonna rise up again. But right now like um and, and this this happens also like with, with guys who get divorced when they have like young kids, suddenly like they they talk about like their testosterone levels are through the roof and they're suddenly like you know, on Pornhub all the time. They're like, <laughs> I have no idea like where this came from, you know, like, uh, but it's, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's actually, it's a very, um, I, I totally buy that theory that you're talking about, like um, that civilization to a large extent is based on a, a careful sort of modulation of our, of our drives sort of like channeling them in ways that are like uh make it possible for us to get along with each other. Yeah. And you yeah. can't pretend them away to channel no, them. No, no. And but I think you know what's what's happening now and you know this is very very disturbing and I don't know if you you, you read that article it was like came out um earlier on this year it's it's uh uh, the sex recession in the Atlantic. It's a really long yeah. article. Yeah, I, I wrote the thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's all about like sort of like why young people are having like less sex now than like ever since they started collecting the research like a century ago. Um, it's 
it's never been lower than it is now, right? And there's all these explanations for it. But like one of the explanations is that testosterone levels are dropping all over, you know, all over the the world, right? And there's all these theories about why that's happening. But uh but but I do know that like one thing that I've seen with and, and this is <laughs> you sort of you touch on this a lot in your novel, The Ugly, but like uh you know, there's these like sort of women in the novel that are very committed to egalitarianism and to feminism and stuff like that, but they're not actually attracted to the guys that most readily embody this because they're basically yeah. like these like sort of low T guys that like <laughs> are not, are not really interested in them. Right. And like, that's, that's, uh, and so like you have these, these characters in the novel, like, like, like Lena is pr the quintessential example, but like who are reluctantly attracted to a guy you know, the main character who's, who's actually attracted to them. Right. Yeah. Like, so, and it's a, it's, well, I it's, think, I think that whole, that whole toxic masculinity and, and weird messing of, of male roles, it hasn't just messed up men. It's messed up women too. And, uh, I, I think it's, it's not just, I mean, the language of toxic masculinity is new, but this trend has been coming for 20 years, I think where, um, and I think that's why Quebec is a little bit more immune. Anglo culture has always had this tendency to live in the should as opposed to the is. And it's a very Victorian kind of mindset of propriety of what's what's appropriate, but it doesn't really match with biological impulses. Mm -hmm. um, and biology has become a dirty word on the left. Like the, you know, the woke left treats biology the way the right treats climate science. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's this weird anti-scientific... Um, aspect to it, uh, and I, I don't think it's necessary. Like, you can be 100% pro gay rights, pro trans rights, which I am, and still admit that there's you know, there are biological elements to our to our identity. Um, uh, well, I don't know if you average. listen. If you, I don't know if you listen to uh, the interview that I had with with Jonathan Hyde, but like we actually talked about that and. Um, and, you know, one of the things that my sons would be the first to tell you is that because they have a lot of like trans and gay friends, very, very close. In fact, you know, one of my son Tristan's closest friends is, is trans. And like uh, what they would tell you is that the anti-bullying campaigns are fucking bullshit. Like they're yeah. bullshit because they don't have the resources they don't have the Orwellian resources, big brother resources to be watching the students all the time. So actually, if you're trans, the best defense against like sort of transphobia and like kind of people being shitty to you is, well, first of all, yourself. Uh, but second of all, your friends. Right. So like yeah. your friends, like like. The anti-bullying campaigns at my son's school have not protected the trans students that I know. Like, for instance, Tristan's friend, like, uh, who, like, Tristan's like a big fucking kid, and he's like very tough. And like, if anybody even like says an insult to this kid, they're gonna have 
Tristan's like fist in their face, like really fast. Like he's like, like, uh, like, a, like a pit bull, like, like really, really. And like, that's actually like teaching kids how to take care of each other and how to take care of themselves is so much more sustainable as like a model for how yeah. you create, how you create a compassionate, like teaching kids that like you should take care of each other. You should take care of your friends. You should not constantly look for an authority figure to solve all your problems or like a, a law enforcement figure. Like, uh, you know, one of the, the anecdotes that I, I told to, to Jonathan Hyde when I was talking to him is, um, when my kids were younger, the, um, my my older son he he got into a fight with these kids in an older grade and it turned out that they were like surrounding these girls and humping them and like feeling them up and stuff like that i mean they're like yeah grade six you know something like this and uh and he got into a fight with them and like like punched a bunch of kids and like got into like all this stuff and he didn't want to snitch so he didn't say anything when they took him to the principal's office. but And so they asked him what happened, and he said, I'm not saying anything. So they suspended him. Um, but then the other kids, like, sort of talked. And so we got called into the vice principal's office, and, and the vice principal was, like, crying. She was, like, tearing up, and she's like, uh, well, in French. Uh, but she said, like, uh, I'm very, very sorry. I didn't realize that he was being a gentleman and he was being a knight and he was like trying to like, um, like, well, know. that's a better principle than my son had because my son got in a fight in a, I think it was grade two. Um, and he, he just came around the corner in, in the playground and there were these two kids beating up one kid. And yeah. it was just, the kid was already, he, the kid was on the ground and the two bullies were beating him up. Yeah. And Samson came in and he, uh, he judo cause I, I, Made him do jiu-jitsu for five years with some judo in there. Yeah. So he just threw threw both of them on the ground, um, and then one of them went and told the principal, you know, little kids. And uh, so then the principal called in all four, and all four kids were punished equally. So the the two bullies, Samson came in to to stop it, and in the process threw them on the ground. But then you know, there was no serious damage or anything. He just he, it hurt to be thrown on the <laughs> on the gravel. Um, and then the victim, all four kids received the same punishment. And when I came in to talk to the principal's office, I said, I want to know the, the details. And she said, I don't care about the details. They were all fighting. And I said, well, here at school, you're the boss. And you can, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do. But when he comes home, if, whether he gets a reward or a punishment depends on what his role was. And by then I knew what his role was. And so but I was just shocked. I mean, I really had to bite my tongue not to... Uh, not to blow up at the teacher, at the principal, but she honestly just viewed violence as equally bad. Doesn't matter what your role is. Doesn't like matter a, if like a no fault insurance program. Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's kind of the bureaucratic mindset to these yeah. scenarios, and it's teaching kids such counterproductive. Uh, well, Jonathan Haidt, he introduced me to this wonderful term in the interview, which I since have like read up on a great deal. It's uh, it's really amazing. It's called moral dependency, uh, and it's like you're you're inculcating moral dependency, which is that yeah. you you expect you constantly expect um, an authority figures to solve all of your problems for you, like 
laws, well, government, and things like that. Gonna... Yeah. And it, it was just, but the thing is, is we didn't even, Tristan didn't even tell us, but like with, with him, it was like, there were, the kids were a little bit older. They were like, he was in grade six and uh, he, he just graduated, but like he went to a school that is uh, right across the street from McGill on university called face. Okay. And they go from kindergarten all the way to grade 11. So you have kids that are like, you know, tiny uh, two kids that are kind of just about to go to Sejap, right? So, like, uh, in the same building, right? But, but anyway, so like, he was in grade six at the time, and the kids that were doing this were like in grade eight, and it wasn't like, it wasn't just like grade two, like, you know, he, yeah. he landed a bunch of punches and made some people bleed, and like he was like banged up a little bit, but he would not tell us. You know, he was, uh, I mean, my guess is that uh, he was just, he was really angry and he was also kind of like, um, I don't know, like embarrassed and shocked by the things that they were doing because he's kind of a pretty straight-laced kid. So I think he, he was just like horrified by the things that they were doing. And so he didn't want to repeat it even to us. Yeah. So he wouldn't tell us what happened like we asked him and he's like i don't want to talk about it he's like they were doing something bad to my friend um and to the girls and i, I don't want to talk about it so um but but but, 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 but the, we heard about it from the other parents yeah the girl the parents of the girls who had told their parents and they they told us and like uh but yeah what jonathan Hyde was saying is he's like yeah well that's that's basically he he's sees himself as a moral agent. He, like he doesn't expect like other yeah. people to solve the problems, and he feels like I should, if I in every way I can, I should intervene. Right. So and it's funny because I remember like you know these random. I I never thought about this until our conversation right now. But like the I remember once they were reading like I think it was a Shakespeare one of Shakespeare's plays, and it was like they were getting the news about their son's death in, in a wartime situation. And it's, you know, it's Shakespeare. Right. And like, and they, they asked the question, like, uh, were there wounds in the front? Right. And, yeah. uh, and they, and somebody like in the living room in our house was like, why would they ask that? And it was so funny. Cause like Tristan and Indy were like, immediately they're like, because their family wanted to know if they fought. <laughs> Like if they if they were killed while running away, or if if like defending their friends and their their position, but, like but back at, and they automatically they were like yeah they, their family just wanted to know like did he die with honor or with with disgrace. But back to Tristan not not being the one to snitch. What I found fascinating, especially in the lower grades, is how often it's the bully that ends up snitching. Oh yeah. So if so somebody stands up to the bully, and the bully ends up losing, even though he started it. Um, and he's kind of morally would be the most culpable by most rational moral frameworks. Um, the minute something happens to them, it's the same personality trait. The bully personality trait is very often the one who will pick on smaller people and snitch. Yeah. Whereas the personality trait of the person who, um, you know, the, the white knight, for lack of a better word, they're much less likely to be the snitch. 
And so I think we are creating a snitch culture, which we're, we're in a sense we're creating a bully culture at the same time. We're just modifying the, the channels of the bullying somewhat. And you see this on Twitter. You see the, the, the mob yeah. mentality that the snitch culture and the bully culture, they tend to go with the same psychological framework. Yeah. It's, it's well, I mean, you block. saw that, that recent, that, that like conservative uh, teenager, the Parkland who was like, got into Harvard and then like his friends who had worked with him, they basically like uh, sent Harvard screenshots of like conversations that he had had like in, uh, uh, on Google, like documents, or I can't remember exactly on Skype, like where he had said like these racist things, and I didn't realize it was his own friends that turned him in. Yes, it was people that he went to school with, and you know I was like talking like my wife and I had talked about this over coffee for like about forty five minutes this morning, and I was really really disturbed by this like. And I just thought, like, you know, I sort of, she said, well, you know, I mean, this guy's like an asshole. And, like, I understand if Harvard doesn't want, like, you know, doesn't want them, this guy, like, to get into Harvard. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, I kind of get that. But also, like, like, what are you encouraging? Like, what yeah. are you encouraging? Well, like, are you encouraging, like, there's a record of practically everything now, right? Like, I mean, uh, like, do you want to encourage a world where, y you know, you and I, for instance, like, cannot have, like, off-the-record conversations on Facebook or on the phone or by text where I, you know say outrageous shit and you say outrageous because we're like talking as two guys privately like where you can but never ever like have a private conversation like that's but that's crazy why my parents, you asked me why my parents escaped from Czechoslovakia that's why the I mean the communist culture was completely built on you know Orwellian this constant spying my, my teachers would check on me on May Day to see if I had I remember I terrified my mom because uh, the teacher asked me whether to, we're supposed to check if our parents had given flowers on the Russian soldiers' graves. Oh my so God. I came home and I asked my mother, I asked my mother, did you put flowers on a Russian soldier's grave? And without thinking, she snapped back, said, why the hell would I thank the Russians for anything? And uh, I said, oh, I got to tell the teacher. And she freaked out. And she was begging me, don't tell the teacher that. Because the school system used the kids to spy on parents. Yeah. And... <clears throat> We're creating a similar dynamic from the grassroots up. You know, at least there, it came from the top down. Um, now, the, the flip side was that it, the friendships you formed were friendships that you really, really trusted each other because you had the ability to, to basically make your friend disappear if you snitched on them. And so friendships were, you know, it's like the no mafia or, 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 or biker gangs. You know, yeah. you ended up with much deeper friendships because you had each other's lives in your hands. But um, yeah, that's actually a friend, it, a friend of mine who was uh, who he just died like a few years ago. But like, I, I really love this guy; uh, just a wonderful, brilliant man. But he was talking about like being gay, like back in the in the in the forties and fifties and stuff like that. And he said, like, 
you know, back then, like somebody like sort of going public about like the fact that you were like homo, they could ruin your fucking life. They could like get you evicted from your apartment. They could, you could lose your job. You would like, they could really ruin your life. And so he said it actually made the bonds between gay men really tight. And so you had like closer friendships. And then when you add to add that to the fact that like homosexuality is like more accepted and gay and we have like Will and Grace and Six Feet Under and we have Modern Family and we have you know, I this is beyond my wildest dreams. Like I never thought I would see like such uh, you know, in big gay pride parades that are supported by every fucking bank and everything. Like, I, you know, rainbow flags everywhere. He said, "I'm I'm overjoyed by that, but the one thing that I'm that saddens me about it is that um, because exactly what you were talking about, um, you know, in in Czechoslovakia, that under communism, that because of the danger, right? Um, this created really, really strong um, relationships, really strong friendships that um, that are just not possible now, right? And as soon and he yeah. said, you know, now that, like, gay men are, and, are getting married and, like, having kids, they're just going to become, like, boring suburban couples like everybody else. Whereas, like, it used to be the case that, like, gay men were these you know, we're punching above their weight like crazy when it came to like art and and literature and all these things. And it's because they were adults that had a lot of education and resources and leisure time, right? So they were yeah. not like and, and now that they're gonna if, if they're gonna start adopting like Chinese kids and you know, like we're gonna start adopting like kids and like you know they're just going to become like more bourgeois suburban parents. Like, yeah, but uh, I mean, uh, I, I want to say a bit more about the the kind of uh, the danger creates stronger friendships, but specifically about the the role that gay men have played. I I've always been extremely grateful to the gay rights movement for uh, normalizing a wider variety of kink that has spilled over into into straight culture. Yeah. Um, they're at the forefront of, of fighting for what then was considered perversion. Um, and of course, it's, it's just it's a human rights issue that, that gay rights and let people you know, choose whom they love. But there is a loss, like you said, and it's, it's not just in art and everything else, but it's also, I feel like we've lost the vanguard of, people, of the kind of the true liberal movements towards open mindedness when it comes to sex. And I think that you know we, we're moving back, especially because now the religious right and the woke left are kind of teaming up. <laughs> they agree on so much; it's amazing. <laughs> on so much, especially when it comes to issues like sex. And I feel like we've lost the the, you know, the Spartans in the battle <laughs> for for you know. I really appreciate the, the, the being the, the springboard for opening up more possibilities. Um, and there's a real loss to to losing this this sense of perversion that was part of of, of gay sex because not, not for them for them they they needed to win that battle but for the rest of us I feel like we've we've lost that springboard. And I remember a, a critique of of the of the marriage movement saying why would you want to jump backwards two thousand years into 
this traditional monogamous prison when you already have a springboard for a much like, for creating a whole new type of relationship and a new type of identity and you're using it to want the most boring bourgeois mundane thing there is which is marriage yeah like, yeah, it's funny. I I remember uh, my my friend Becky, who I I totally have to introduce you to her. She's like one of the most amazing human beings that I know in the world. I love her so much. Uh, but she she all we were roommates when we were like teenagers, and at the time she had moved here from Edmonton with her girlfriend, and they were like living like this kind of outlaw lesbian like existence and. Anyway, we we became like fast friends and we ended up like I broke up with my girlfriend and she broke up with hers. And so we decided to like move in with each other to be cheaper. And so we we had all these like crazy adventures together and stuff like that. But I remember her. uh, She said that like one of the things she really loved about Montreal and about French Canada, as opposed to English Canada, is she said uh, in Vancouver and Edmonton, where she had lived, um, she said, like, lesbianism is so much about, like, hating men, and it's so political, and it's so, like, you know, fighting patriarchy, and, like, there's all these people, like, that are in the scene, and they're in the scene for various kinds of like political reasons, and you know you may you may agree or or disagree with with their reasons. That's that's I you know let, let's leave that aside, right? I can understand why people might be really pissed off at patriarchy or men or you know whatever. Leaving that aside, she said you know it was very frustrating to her where uh, she would meet a lot of like like cute women in English Canada who she would be really into them and they would start something and she would figure out like, you know, pretty soon on into the relationship that you're not actually attracted to women. You're just like repulsed by men. <laughs> like, and she said, you know, it was so, she goes, it was so liberating moving to Montreal because she goes like the, the, you know, the sort of the lesbian scene in Montreal it's chicks that just want to fuck chicks. It's like, it's just like, it's straight up like animal attraction. There's no kind of like, I'm angry at my father or like my uncle because he abused me. Like, she's like, the the women you meet in Montreal, it's just like, they, they love their dad. They, they, you know, they make him dinner on Father's Day and send him flowers. And they think he's the most beautiful, wonderful. They love, it's my daddy and I, I love him. And he took me to Canadians games when I was a kid. And I, I get along with my brothers very well. And like, you know. I just like the fuck oh, yeah, chicks. Yeah. I just like the fuck chicks. Like it, it, it. There was no issues. Like it was not like a. She goes. I, I got so sick of being a lesbian in English Canada because every meeting felt like a support group, and like I was actually showing. <laughs> I was going to a gay bar because I want to fuck chicks, and like I don't like. Yeah. I'm and, and and there's these people there, and all they want to do is talk about like how angry they are at like. And she goes, you know, there's a lot of good reasons to be angry. But, you know, my buddy, like, she she, she adores her father. Like, she fucking, yeah. she, I mean, he's still alive, and I know him. And he's he's actually one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met in my life. Like, he's, you, he's an incredibly said- charismatic, he's built three businesses from the ground up. 
uh, you know, to become like multi-million dollar businesses from a guy who like, you know, dropped out of high school because he couldn't read well, like in Alberta. Like he's a he's a brilliant, wonderful man uh, in many different ways. And she loves her father. You know, but she and she gets along with her older brother very well. She loves her older brother and she has lots of male friends. But she she was just she was very kind of yeah. put off by that. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Oh, absolutely. I, I think Quebec is the Muzduk of Canada. <laughs> like you said, you said Muzduk was more embodied. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, when I, the, the Quebecois girl that I dated when I was in McGill, uh, we met at a party. Went home the same night, uh, started having sex. She climbed on top and jammed her finger up my ass. Like within six hours, of, within six hours of knowing her, you compare that to to Vancouver or or English Canada generally. The girls will sleep with you on the third date. It's always on the third date after signing because, a contract. You know, some book, yeah, some book, <laughs> and then for each, they would never think of just shoving a finger up your ass without asking for explicit content, consent for that. Mm-hmm. And I'm all about consent, but you know, sometimes you can uh, read it from the situation. You can, you can kind of. I mean, as soon as you start analyzing it, I, I can already see all the rebuttals. But the thing about <laughs> about sex, no, no, no pun on on the rebuttal. But uh, the thing about sex is sometimes you want to have an animalistic element. Yeah. And, People in English Canada are extremely in their head, yeah. And it's everything so overanalyzed. And and Harvard is basically a more extreme version of English Canada in that, because these are people who are hyper conscious that the person sitting next to them might be the next president of the United States, or you know five of the nine Supreme Court ju- justices are Harvard Law School graduates, and so they're that's what made the place so toxic. Even though I dislike the word toxic, yeah. Um, it's funny so what, you, what you just said. Like the like, my wife and I we met on uh, on the dance floor at a club in Baltimore, October fifteenth, nineteen ninety nine, and we were like back in my place six hours later, <laughs> and like hooking up, and we've been together ever since twenty years. Like, uh, but it was like you know people who say that like sleazy hookups. Cannot lead to meaningful relationships. Total lie. <laughs> like, this was like a one night stand that has been twenty yeah. years. So, it's my, like, my ex-wife and I met on a plane. And uh, is this the same plane you fought on? No, <laughs> no. This was a this was a plane. It was a local flight in India uh, from Delhi to Ladakh, mm-hmm. Kashmir. She was married and on her way to see a lover, but uh, got a <laughs> next plane from him. She, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. she was married, but on the way to see the person she was having an affair with. Yes. Um, and you thought and this was going to work? A, why? Uh, I don't know. Like I thought, <laughs> you know, I was attracted to crazy. Um, this wasn't this wasn't the girl that was based, Ouida was based on. It was a different person. But um, yeah, when when we landed. Uh, which is an hour and a half flight. She just came and we got a hotel room together up on landing. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> she lasted 10 years. It, 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 maybe I should be uh, revising my, my, my philosophy there, but it, it lasted 10 years from a, you know, a very quick hookup. Yeah. If, if, I, I'm not, but whereas in English Canada, there's like some books that says if you sleep with each other too soon, 
you know, it's not going to last, like you just said. Um, but more generally, everybody lives in their head. Yeah. And there's certain areas in which it's appropriate to live in your head and certain areas in which it's not. Yeah, and, uh, I've, I've had, we... I've had uh, you know, I, I teach a class at John Abbott College called Love and Friendship. And I've, I've sort of, I, I, I try and be very straightforward with the students about what my blind spots are. You know, like I can understand certain kinds of um, manifestations of human desire and violence and things like that. And there's others that I just don't get. It's like a blind spot. Yeah. But one of my blind spots is, you remember, you remember that movie When Harry Met Sally? Yeah. Uh, where like these two people are like friends for years and then they realize they're in love with each other. And like uh, I find that I, I love that movie. I, I love it. I think it's hilarious and I really like it. And I know people that fit that pattern. But that has never, ever happened to me. Ever. Everybody that I've yeah. been in love like like uh, five times in my life. And every single time I've been in love, it was instantaneous. It was the first time I saw that person. It was like an animal attraction to that person. And uh, it was like right away. I've never had the experience of like you know, knowing somebody for a while and then like you, you, you realize you're in love with them. Like, like I, I've never like fell in love with like one of my friends, like, you know, girlfriends or wives or something like that. It's never, ever happened. Like it's just, it's, it's either there's an immediate attraction or there's not. Right. And the same thing with, with, uh, with my close friends immediately when I met them, there was like a click where it was like, I fucking like you. Like I, I just, yeah, I, I trust you. Like it's just uh, so I'm I'm kind of I'm fascinated by people who have this English Canadian sort of where you have the multiple dates where you're like yeah. for me like kind of falling in love with Annalisa was I met her on a dance floor and I liked the way she looked I liked the way she smelled I liked the way she like moved it was like two animals like meeting each other in a watering hole. Like, <laughs> it was like, yeah. like I, I didn't even know she spoke English until we were, we were dancing for like five or six songs, like in grinding and stuff. I didn't know if she even spoke English or French. I didn't know if she spoke one of the languages I, I speak. When I divorced with my ex-wife, I, I went and did the online dating thing for the only time in my life. And I did for, for a while. Um, and I found it really kind of fascinating slash shocking how many women, and I was 40 at the time, um, and how many 40-year-old women were interviewing for, for a position. <laughs> they were interviewing for <laughs> in their life. And because I fit, I fit you know, my resume, my, my relationship resume was very good. Um, I had a number of women, you know, contact me from the dating sites and they'd be talking I, I remember this one beautiful girl she uh on the second day she started talking uh, making sure i'd be okay with our kids going to jewish school and i said you know you, we haven't even fucked yet and you're talking about school our kids will go <laughs> i don't even know if i like how you smell down there and you yeah. want to talk about how our kids are going to get along that's there, insane there another, yeah there was another uh girl she was uh Way up in the BC Bar, she was the head of the environmental branch of the BC Bar. She had a house on Point Grey Road, which is one of the fanciest roads, house in Whistler. And we're driving, and she said, 
well, what about that house? Maybe we could buy that together, like as a third house. And I said, yeah. <laughs> you know, we just met. We haven't done anything yet. There are gold digging guys out there, but and two of the women that I dated were doing fertility clinics on the side to get pregnant on their own in case they couldn't find a man to fit their role. Oh my and there was God. absolutely animalistic chemistry involved. It was purely rational, um, kind of fulfilling a role, which is extremely unsexy. Yeah. Like I, I, yeah. Even, even if, if I qualify, I have, I have no interest in qualifying for that. So I don't <laughs> want that job. Um, I totally agree. I mean, I don't understand how how people do that. I mean, I know... I know people that have had successful, uh, who've had a success. They've met people online and it worked out, and they're very happy with them. Um, but you know, if I think about like the, especially the guys that I that I'm close to, like I know a, a bunch of guys who got divorced um, in their sort of late 30s, early 40s. And they suddenly went on the kind of online dating scene. And uh, what a lot of them told me is, you know, well, I would hear like all their war stories, right? So they, they were like, oh, my God, like I, I've never got this laid, you know, laid this much in my entire life. It's like insane. It's like it's it's raining pussy, like <laughs> like ridiculous. They're like, they're like, I'm getting like, I'm getting. So they would tell me that. But they would also tell me that, uh the vast majority of these connections just were not good matches, you know? Yeah. And, and most of them, most of them ended up when the dust settled, uh, they ended up hooking up with like a friend of a friend or an old friend or an old girlfriend or, uh, or if they were gay, like an old boyfriend or something, they, they ended up like with somebody that they had a more kind of organic connection to. That's who they actually ended up with. So well, I I did end up with somebody I met online in the end. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So it 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 did work out, but you know it was now a year and a half of of uh, it's called dating um, before that uh, that happened. So I I think it is. I'm not saying that the whole online system is doesn't work, but the the thing that my current girlfriend, you know. She didn't follow the three-day rule. Once we met, it was much more about the chemistry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very natural. But, but my, my, my objection is not to online dating, per se. It's to the hyper-rationalization of, yeah. of what's fun. Oh, what's like, like I, I met this one, I met this one uh, woman, it's just years ago, but like uh, a bunch of her friends said, oh my God, you would totally love John. And like a bunch of my friends were like, you would totally love her. And they, they, they just thought we would be like, you know, perfect match, right? And so we met and immediately... Like, do you remember that place on the corner of, um, it doesn't exist anymore now, but like, you remember the place on the corner of Prince Arthur and Saint Laurent called Vol de Nuit? It was like, uh, just where Prince Arthur becomes like a walking street where there's no like cars. Yeah. It was right on the left. But, uh, but anyway, like, um, so we met there and we just, we got along like amazingly well lot of like uh, attraction stuff like that and so we ended up like going to uh, at the end of the night we ended up going to like a hotel room and stuff like that and 
immediately after fooling around for like 15 minutes, we were both like, uh, no. <laughs> like, it was just, the, the chemistry was just like not there. Like, and, uh, and so we were just like, we kind of giggled about it and we like just had another drink and hung out. And then like, uh, and we went our separate ways and like, I, you know, I see her around and I say hi and you know, no, no hard feelings, but I'm thinking about like in an online world, she's so well suited to me theoretically. I could imagine yeah. like kind of texting with her back and forth for like, we like so many of the same books and the same, we have so many of the same interests. Like I could imagine like, you know, just messaging back and forth with her for months and then, it's, it's and eventually that's... realizing that we just don't, there's a basic kind of like smelling you basic kind of chemistry where we're just not into each other, you know? And I think part of that could be the similarity that uh, the online dating assumes, or even the rational approach assumes that similar is is good. Like I, I had a similar situation with the a Slovak girl I dated in Montreal very briefly. Um, very similar interests. It felt like connected with a kindred soul. As soon as we got in the bed, I felt like I was you know having sex with my mother or something, and or, or a sister. Yeah. It was too close. I don't know if it's genetically too close, culturally too close. Well, I, th I, I think this is a basic. I think this is a basic division in a philosophy of love. I mean, you see this in Plato's Symposium, right? There's two. The, the two predominant philosophies of love in the Symposium is the one presented by Aristophanes, which is that love is like you with that Slovak girl in Montreal, where love is basically finding the other half of your soul, and so. All love for Aristophanes is... Who wants to date half a person? Yeah, uh, but, it, but all, all love for yeah. Aristophanes is basically cousin love. It's basically love. It's basically narcissism. It's basically like love of self. It's like, I love you yeah. because you are the part of me that has been missing, right? Whereas like the other great vision of love presented in the symposium, which I find equally compelling, I, I, I would never choose between the two. I personally choose between the two. I, I choose the Socratic vision, but I understand that they're both equally plausible. Uh, but then there's the Socratic vision, which is that love is the recognition of something that is radically other, that you're so attracted to, but you will never be. You know, And that's like... Uh, I I think... I would never be so stupid as to like say that one is true and the other one is false. I think they're both true. I think it just depends on like who you are. Like you clearly would you put them on a hierarchy? Would you put them on a hierarchy of sophistication like Freud did? Um, or of individuation then? Uh, no, because I've I've known really really complicated, interesting people who who fit with both. So I wouldn't say that it's, um, you know, I, I think, I think actually, if you had to sort of make a hierarchy, it would maybe have more to do with like how much you love yourself. <laughs> like for me, the idea of eternal life is terrifying because I, I, I can't, 
I find myself boring, like at a certain point. Like I can't imagine being myself forever. I find that like like a, a horrifying thought. Like so I, I like you, I like things that are other. You, I like the I like like sort of meeting other things in the world that are radically not me. But I understand that some people feel really love themselves and are very comforted by being surrounded by what is like. And and so for them, love is is better found in somebody that is like themselves, you know. Yeah, I, that's I interesting. I, I I think that I mean I I hope that I'm a radically different person now than I was ten years ago. Um, so I don't know if love of self has to be that static. Um, I, I definitely fall into the. The radically other. I, I prefer people the who are Socratic model. Yeah, yeah, the Socratic. But I also try to do that in myself. Like, uh, you know, that that eighteen-year-old idiot who was walking into street fights, um, and in Hull. Like, I, I now that I actually know how to fight, I walk away from fights. Yeah. Um, and similarly, in terms of you know the the person I was. When well, when I wrote the ugly, for example, I was fascinated with you know a, a deep ontological need to understand the the world. Um, whereas now, I just need to understand whether my son did my did his homework or not. <laughs> um, do you think like, you'll ever? Do you think you'll ever write uh, um, a a sequel to the ugly? To the ugly. I just finished another book, but it's very, very different. Um, what, what's it's, it about? It's uh, it's called The Man Who Saw Seconds. It's about it's a, it's science fiction. It's about a man who can see five seconds into the future. Um, it's a story of, of how man turns into a monster over time. Like a, a good man turn, turning into a monster. Uh, basically, he ends up in an altercation with the police on the subway, and it just escalates and escalates and escalates. Um, and it, it it plays with ideas of time and neuroscience, but mostly it's about and, and it's a story of a man against society, but with sufficient skills to actually be able to make it a fair fight. Um, and it's, just, it's basically how the fight itself can turn you into a monster. Huh. I I it's funny because I was thinking at the end of your I, I read it for a second time before our our conversation and um, I. By the time I got to the end of it, I somebody got or you know whatever an animal or a human got sprayed by a skunk at like four thirty in the morning in my neighborhood, and it came in through our window, and it was so strong it like woke me up. <laughs> and I could smell the skunk in the, and I, I had like I went outside and I was like this fucking stinks, <laughs> and I was like thinking about your novel and like I. In my in my sort of waking moments, I I had this vision of you writing a sequel to the ugly called the beautiful, <laughs> and oh. it was like it was this really kind of fascinating uh, sort of new story about like what happens to uh, Mujduk when he like settles down. And he's raising a son named Samson the Happy, 
And like, by the way, I love that at the end of the novel. Anyway, uh, but he's like raising like, you know, Samson the happy and he's sort of trying to sort of understand and and working in art galleries in different parts of the world and like trying to understand it. In my head, it looked really cool. <laughs> so I was, I remember, well, I, like, I got to ask him, you know, are you going to write well, the, last... the beautiful? That's a great idea. I may steal that from you. Um, You're not stealing but... it. It's an extension of your soul. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote the epilogue or the last chapter late. The earlier, the early versions had a much more open-ended ending that editors were not happy with because it was too open-ended. And so I, uh, I tied it in together at the end. But that was, uh, I was never 100% uh, convinced whether tying it back in was a wise literary move or, or me kind of giving in. Um, but yeah, I, I, a sequel would be interesting, but it would have to be radically different. Of course, um, of course. It, yeah. You know, the the beautiful. It would be like a very, very interesting kind of sort of what happens next, right? But but I mean, the ugly as it as it is, I'm sure people have told you this before, but like this would make an amazing kind of Netflix uh, series. Like you could, I, I when I was reading it the second time, I'm like, oh my god, this would like. This would make such because it, it's very the the writing is very very cinematic, it's very sort of descriptive and it, it just would it would look really good like on a on a screen like it's it would it wouldn't be very hard to turn it into a, a like a screenplay or a teleplay like it would be uh, it's uh, yeah I I think it 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 would make a fantastic. Netflix, you know, series, you know, maybe like it would probably end up having to be like about uh, like 10 episodes or something like that. But like it, it would be really good. <laughs> like, that's Thank my, you. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you may be uh, a bit too perfect of an audience to judge, though, like <laughs> you because you have a philosophy background. You have the um, like uh, the book. In a sense, it's, it's, it's a bit misleading because it starts off very easy and cinematic with the boulder throwing, and then it gets heavier and heavier with, I think, a lot of payback requires some uh, background knowledge. You know, how, how many people got the raw stalls and urinals joke other than you? Probably nobody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I've, passed or, to, or, I've passed it to four people now, and uh, and they all... Um, they all really loved it, and they all sort of said the same thing. They're like, "This would make such a good Netflix series. Like, this would be like you could just picture it. It just it looks good in your head. Like when you're reading it, it's like this would be, this would translate very well to um, to a to a screen. You know, like it would it would it it wouldn't be hard. You know, like it's uh, at all. Right? But, uh, but well, I, I don't think it's I don't think it's um, overly i mean i mean i get you you're saying it you think it's a little bit maybe in places a little bit kind of an inside joke i i don't think like you you don't need to get that joke right um no that, I hope, you don't I, you I, don't I need to rawls stalls and urinals you, you don't need to get that joke to love that scene 
I mean, if you do get that joke, uh, it'll be more fun. But, you know, the guy's at Harvard. He's at a he's at Harvard Law School and he's at a you expect a bunch of nerdy. I'm so smart inside jokes at those bars. Right. So if you get the joke, you're like, ha, ha, ha. if you don't, you're like, of course I don't. These are a bunch of, you know, stuck up assholes like. Yeah, you don't need to get the joke. You don't need to get the joke to like appreciate the scene at all. I I, I try to be careful of that. Like I, I had a line where Wida and Muzduk, um talk for months about whether to go to the uh, the Derrida Cafe. <laughs> Shea Derrida. I, I think Shea I, if, Derrida. If, yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if you read, if you're familiar with Derrida, there's an add a little joke in there, and if you don't, it's a half a sentence that hopefully you won't even notice. Um, so that, yeah, maybe it was a bit too, I was having too much fun, but I might try to make it so that it would still work without, <laughs> without the, 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 the play. Um, but yeah, thank you for the kind words. I, yeah. I, well, it's like, it's like, you know, when the author of Foucault's <laughs> Pendulum, he said like, you know, I wrote it for three people and everybody loved it. Right. So <laughs> like you, you don't need to, tr- you don't <laughs> well, need to cool. write that, for that, everybody. You don't need to write for yeah. everybody. Uh, I think actually, you know, my experience with with podcasting, for instance, with this podcast is uh, the conversations are always at. I mean, you know, I'm like having fun. I'm talking to somebody that I like, and I'm I'm, I'm sitting here drinking whiskey, and you know, like I'm having fun. But like the conversation is it, it's it's at a high level. Like I I'm presuming that the audience is paying attention if you don't understand something pause it and go fucking look that shit up i'm not going to explain it to you so like it's the conversations that are and and the response has been fantastic i mean people don't like being treated like idiots they don't like yeah. being condescended to they really don't like it so yeah it oh, actually that, yeah and it, it, the benefits have been that's true for parenting too i i, I live very early on don't condescend to children yeah, yeah. It's true for audiences. It's true for everybody. Yeah, no, I mean that's absolutely where for for I, I've never ever I have I I've never condescended to my boys. I mean, okay, when they were younger, there were certain topics that I would not talk to them about because I didn't think it was appropriate to talk to the, to a kid about that. But so I yeah. would avoid certain topics, but I would never talk down to them when we were talking about something like, and, and I would never talk to them in a special way, like in a, in a kid voice or something like that, or with a different language. Um, and if, you know, we, we live in a small place in Plata Montreal and like we have friends over all the time, sitting around the table, drinking, talking till three in the morning. And they've grown up with, with adults sitting around and talking about politics and art and ideas like till three in the morning. And, getting loud and wow they, they've grown up with that their whole lives so they don't you're uh, making me miss the trail yeah they don't um they don't they don't expect adults to to treat them with contempt so yeah. um but it, it's funny because we were we were talking about this with some of our friends the other days because they were saying how they they were talking to 
their kids about like you know sexuality and things like that and like we were trying to navigate this and and our response was like well you know we we talk to our kids openly about lots of things but we also think like there should be things that are private like <laughs> like you you don't like you know you don't uh, there has to be some sort of lines between the way you talk to like your homies and the way you talk to your kids like <laughs> you can't, it can't be i don't know but but there are some people that seem to have this like you should talk about absolutely everything and it, my my wife came home from like a, a get together last night and she was just she she had had a really good time but uh and she was kind of you know it kind of liquored up and everything. but but she said she said oh my god she said you know these these women I'm hanging out with I love them but they're talking about reading their kids email and texts <laughs> And stuff like that. Yeah. And she's like, she's like, I, I felt like I was going to throw up. Like, she goes, I would never, yeah. ever, like, like, what an invasion of privacy. Like, what a, you know, like, that's just, you shouldn't do that. Like, like and she, she was very, very upset. She's like, I, I can't believe they would do that. Like, how could you ever, like, you have so much power over this person for a couple of years until they move out and do their own thing why would you abuse that power in this Orwellian creepy way? Like where you're going. Well, in not like... just that, but your job, your job is to help them basically become free of you. Yes. And if you're bubble wrapping them the whole time, you're not teaching them how to individuate. You're actually stunting their growth. Even something as simple as a, you know, track me app on the phone. Parents don't realize how much, you know, we were talking about when we were in Montreal because some of the other kids had that on the, on their phones. And uh, I mentioned Samson, and he said, oh, it sounds like that Black Mirror episode we watched. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah. Um, oh, my God, the Archangel. Like, Archangel. Yeah, where they have the technology. Yeah. Where you, you implant it in the kid's head, and you can see everything they see. And yeah. So, yeah. But, but in terms of talking to your kids, yeah, there's a difference in condescension and then the kind of the flattening of, of social conversations. And I think Facebook and social media – one of the most horrible things about it is that it assumes away situationality. Like this is maybe I'm channeling Weeda a little bit here, but mm -hmm. you're not meant to be the same person with your jujitsu buddies as with your wife, as with your kid. Like yeah. it, it's, it's basic premise of, of neuroscience that, you know, when people over the on OD on heroin, it's usually because they end up doing it in a different room from where they're used to. Like our biology is primed to, take into account our situation, our context, even the room we're in. Um, you know, but that's why I say don't have a TV in your bedroom because you walk into the bedroom, if there's no TV and you're instantly in a different mindset uh, from a different room in your office. And how much more so in terms of social circles? Mm -hmm. But with something like Facebook, you're, you're flattened down to one identity. I don't mean in terms of race or gender, but as a, you know, in, in the real sense. Um, they flatten what is meant to be nuanced and, and slightly different. Like when we were talking on Facebook about, you know, I, I said my brain's a clown car full of <laughs> different drivers. Um, I, I don't want the same same clown driving across all situations. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so some know how to drive better on dirt roads and some can drive better on paved roads. Um, and Facebook 
just flattens all that into. And it's funny because I, when I wrote the ugly, I remember there was a line in there I put about the conversations on the boat cruise <laughs> that they were flat, flat as McDonald's yeah. pickle. Yeah, I have no idea why McDonald's pickle jumped into my head as a symbol of yeah. flatness. But uh, I feel like social media has done done the exact same thing. And it, one thing I, I kind of pat myself on the back for is that we had a Facebook, but at Harvard, but this is because I wrote the book again before I wrote it 16 years ago. There wasn't the, the digital Facebook yet. It was actually a, a, a physical book of people's pictures that were in your class. Yeah. And people studied, people actually studied them. The Facebook. In order to yeah. prepare, the, the Facebook in order to prepare for social interactions the way they would for, you know, for an exam. And, there's a point in the book where I say, you know, Harvard's a generation ahead of the rest of America. And I feel like that played out. <laughs> like, well, that is, so that is, that is like the, the best possible way that we can end. <laughs> Harvard is a generation ahead of Facebook. Well, you, you definitely have to uh, come back on the podcast when you find a, a publisher for, or maybe we can help you find that. But but uh, for this next book, and then also when you, uh, again, when you write the sequel to The Ugly, you have to come on. I have a feeling a sequel to The Ugly should be uh, when I'm significantly older. I don't know. I, think I don't know why. Do it now. I mean, it's, it's been long enough. 20 years, it's long enough. You could write That's a true. sequel. You could write a sequel, but. Anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, and uh, I I can't wait uh, till you're in Montreal again. I think my I my know. guess is that you'll be in Montreal before I'm in Vancouver. Well, my son, <laughs> my son will be there next month for he's doing a uh, summer camp at the Ecole Nationale du Cirque. Oh my uh, God! Really? Wow. Yeah, but I'm not going. Does uh, uh, does he have a place to stay? Yeah, he's, it's it's a uh, the camp is uh he he stays at the at the at the call at the ENC. Yeah, where is the where is the camp? It's directly across from Cirque du Soleil. It's oh right across God. the street. You know, who, yeah, I, so I live like a few blocks away from there. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Okay. Well, you you're gonna have to like I'll send you, but he's gonna have to come over for dinner a couple times. We'll make him whatever he likes, like. Uh, <laughs> Like whatever he really likes, because because he honestly he's like he's a few blocks away. Like, really? Uh, uh, yeah. If my son was well, my son's going to flight camp for the summer. But uh, if if you were in uh, Saint Jean, uh, I would I would Saint Jean sur Richelieu. I would expect you to invite my son over for dinner. So I will invite your son <laughs> over for dinner. <laughs> but uh, he he said uh, uh, the military college there. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's doing. Uh, uh, I had a friend who went there. Yeah, he's got the he's got his glider license already, and now he's going this summer for he's in cadets, and he's going for his uh, his basically his power license this summer. So by oh, the by the end of the summer, he will be able to like take us up on a plane and and fly us to Quebec City. Like well, we already we already we already found a place that like we can rent a plane for a day. And uh, wow. and he'll be able to our our seventeen year old son will be able to like fly us to Quebec City and back, like we'll be able to see all the Saint Lawrence and stuff like that. I'm so psyched. <laughs> but uh, that's great. Yeah. 
But anyway, yeah. So so give him our uh, our home address on Laval Avenue and uh, tell him he he's invited over for home cooked meal. But, oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Take care, man. All right. Thanks Bye. again. Bye. <clears throat>